What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 43 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for Wednesday, April 19th. I have to remember if our title was right, if I said it right in my head, because even to this day, I still get Uncovering Unsolved Mysteries, and like, I want to say that. Oh, oh no, you just said it. You I know. Said the whole thing. I'm going to have to bleep it out, you know, I don't... <laughs> I don't have the money to pay them thousands of dollars for being sued. Anyway, I'm here with my co-host, Mike. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing all right. Uh, I got a job interview with Walmart. It, I basically didn't get the job because apparently they took one look at me and were like, oh, he can't lift anything. So, uh, yeah, uh, the guy was nice about it, but essentially that's what he was saying. He was saying, I don't think you're right for this job. I don't think you can unload stuff from a truck. I don't think you can move a pallet jack. I don't think you can do any of this stuff. Oh, damn. So, I didn't know he uh, said all that. Well, he didn't really necessarily say that, but he, he basically did. It's one of those, like, I don't think you're the right fit for this job. Mm. But but I do feel that, you know, maybe you're the right fit for some of these other things. He did like the questions, the way I a answered his customer service questions. He said he would talk to somebody and see if they had any other openings uh, for me. He said he would call yesterday or Monday, and I called on Tuesday, and then he's like, I still hasn't heard anything back, and I haven't gotten a call back yet. So I'm going to give it to the end of the week, but I'm thinking they're just buffing me off, which is frustrating and, and annoying and irritating. It's like I live like right here. I can walk to your store. You're telling me you're trying to hire people to do a remodel and you can't find a place for me? Are you kidding me? Yeah. What? Well, you know what, man? Like <laughs> you... over forty people, you can't think. Oh, well, yeah. You know this this young guy who doesn't have a lot of wear and tear on his body. Yeah, we we can't find a place for him. Ridiculous. You know, you might you might go to twenty other places and deal with that. You know, that's um. That that's that's all in the nature of looking for a job. It sucks, you know, and it's not always as easy as people. That's why I'm thinking about. It. I'm like, well, I guess maybe I should just try to focus on the podcast and YouTube on the, in the time being. Yeah. YouTube though, YouTube though, man, like that those Wall Street Journal just fucked everyone over, uh, and the revenue is down for everyone. Oh, really? Oh, with so, the, the, the big and small, with the advertisements, uh, the advertisers yep. being more choosy about where they yeah, run their there's, ads. There's there's less advertisements now to go around. I didn't have that much revenue to begin with, but now it's been like down to like nowhere near where it was, and yeah. So I don't I, even I, check. I, I guess I might I might go on VidMe. Maybe I think about as I've heard about that's a different platform that. I, I might experiment with that and, and see what goes there. You can get paid tips on there, uh, and uh, you can, I guess, charge a dollar if you want for people to subscribe to your channel. So we'll see what happens. I don't know. I, I just it's just with YouTube. It's like that's where my established user base is, and I, I you know, it's a whole that's a whole other story. But um, I think I made like I think I made like fifty dollars in an entire year. On YouTube, but, hey, in ad revenue, you know, it's it's something, but you're not going to get anything yet. <laughs> you get to hundred. 
<laughs> I heard so, that, I uh, heard that um, you have to you. I heard that your channel has to have at least ten thousand views on it cumulatively now to even be considered. Yeah, I think it's think it's actually thirty thousand or something. Okay, which I have. I have like a hundred. Like I have like a hundred thousand cumulative views. You probably have way, yeah. Way more well, than it that. makes sense. I have millions of cumulative views, so it, it's it's yeah. If you have. Yeah, I, you're you're good. I mean, if you have a good amount of views, I mean, I don't have to worry about that on my end. I'm just hoping things. I'm not giving up yet because I have a feeling things will settle down eventually, and the advertisers will come back to YouTube because it's too big of a platform. There really is not a viable competition for YouTube yet. There's too much money to be made by these advertisers. They're gonna wait till this controversy dies down, and then they're gonna come back. It's just how advertising works <laughs> i mean huh advertise on a big platform or not do it well we'll we'll not do it to appease the wall street journal and these other people for a little bit and then when the heat dies down we'll come back thanks pewdiepie it's not really his fault it's wall street journal who made up a bunch of bullshit lies and might have even uh done some fraud of their own uh by creating a fake screenshots of uh, Coca-Cola ads playing in front of racist videos. And even if they did play in front of racist videos, that doesn't mean that YouTube itself is advocating racism. It doesn't mean that the advertisers were advocating racism. It, it's an algorithm. It, it's one of those things where, okay, you're a partner, and so the, just certain things get uh, put on the ads. But what's unrealistic about a Coke ad, which is a prime ad, being put on a video that doesn't have that many views is that wouldn't happen normally so there's something very fishy with that where the wall street journal is tweeting these pictures proving that youtube is sponsoring racist videos and showing these screenshots with uh, coke ads playing in front of a racist video but then uh, people did their own research and found out that, okay, if this is a big ad, this this video should have made more than $12. I heard that that was, a, that was busted, that, that whole... Yeah, exactly. I... So, But that's the problem. Uh, you know, the advertisers got... I guess they got... They got chicken feet or they, they got chicken cold shit, feet. cold feet. They, they got chicken <laughs> shit, cold feet. And uh, they ended up... Uh, just, I guess, bowing down to the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal is an example of old media, and it's dying, and so they're trying to fight back So, against the future of media, which is with YouTube and platforms like it. So yeah. it's kind of like you know John and Terry. It's this old-school way of thinking, and, and the need to kind of just rethink things. Um, but the advertisers have come back. It's just, it's just something that right now is definitely hurting a lot of creators. Yeah, there really is no viable comp uh, competitor to YouTube though uh, right now. So I'm, I'm as far as like migrating to a different platform, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna do that anytime soon. I might, I might experiment with VidMe because I like the idea of an, an a community like YouTube used to be, and uh, to experiment and do, you know, you, and kind of do more copyrighted stuff and you know, just be more creative uh, and. It seems like VidMe has that opportunity, so I might use that to, you know, do a little bit more creative kind of stuff, take a little more chances with my content. But you know, I got to make time for that, and I got to be honest, folks. I admit it, I'm lazy, 
So it's like I'd rather just sit down and record a video from my webcam instead of like put in pictures and video and music and all of that. Oh, that's what I'm working on right now. I'm working on a new actual episode for my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash dancing with ghosts. But uh, I'm reviewing a whole uh, these uh, new mobile games. Well, they released at the beginning of the year. Uh, the Mega Man games, um, they were released okay. by Capcom on uh, an I- iPhone and uh, Android. And um, basically, I'm doing a video on how bad they suck compared to the original NES games. And, okay. uh, and oh, yeah, I'm doing, like, the green screen. I'm doing, like, uh, a lavalier mic attached to myself. Like, I mean, it's... it's um, like my vlogs are, yeah, I'm just sitting in front of the camera talking, but my actual, like, I guess, episodic stuff I do, I really like pull out all the stops. It almost looks like a professional, uh, production when you see it, mm-hmm. like all the shit that I use and all. And- well, that's cool. I mean, I, I, I do, I do admire your, your work and, and how great everything looks and all the It's a pain in the ass though, dude. To, I, I feel you though on the laziness. Like you, you see my output compared to your output and uh, you're you put out a lot more volume than I do because yeah it takes me I I feel like I have the same laziness so for me to put out a high production video dude that takes me like months you know to put out one fucking video and for me it's like I want to review as many movies as I possibly can so if I you know and I can even do better than that you know I, I've been kind of slacking a bit and I admit it. I've just also just been busy with other stuff. I'm busy going to school, going to Clark, not Clark, going to WC Vancouver, going to the campus, talking with counselors, getting things set up for uh, the fall term, which starts in August for some reason, which I always found bizarre. Oh, fall term starts in the in summer, still technically summer. <laughs> it's like it's not really a fall term. Okay. Yeah, there's All not right. a lot of thing. There's not a lot of things about college that do make sense. So just get used to the not making sense part. <laughs> so I'm thinking about getting a, a humanities uh, English uh, kind of bachelor's plus another thing because the other English uh, uh, bachelor's was like literature and uh, English literature studies or history, and it was like books of the 1600s and 1700s. No, no way in hell. I could not stand reading that shit, let alone writing about it. Well, that shouldn't be so a problem with, for you with, because you you are a bachelor and you have a sense of humanity. Oh, hey, hey, I'll be here all night. I'll be here all night. What's worse than having a... Uh, uh, oh! What's worse than having a lobster on your piano, a crab on your organ? Oh, hey, oh, ooh, ooh, ah, yeah, I'll be here all night. My name's Juicy J. Uh, shit. Okay, well, I think that's a good point to stop all that dead in its tracks because we've uh, probably sufficiently annoyed... Uh, everybody with our uh, YouTube <laughs> chit chat and our whatever the fuck. Um, well, speaking of YouTube, uh, we, we definitely should, and that's on me really. But I guess the views haven't been that great for our YouTube channel. Uh, but uh, yeah, should probably post more uh, episodes on there. That's that's how people find. That's how people like on the show have always found us. Um, it's it's through YouTube. Hasn't been through any other means. So if if that's the only thing that that gets us, then hey. Uh, speaking of that, later on in this podcast, I will be talking to Suzanne Kelsey. Uh, she owned the house that was featured in the Kelsey House haunting that was on Unsolved Mysteries, and they even picked it for their Halloween episode. Uh, back in the day, 
And uh, yeah, I spoke to her on the phone a few days ago, and that interview will be happening later on so in the podcast, so be looking forward to that. But uh, our first uh, segment that we're going to be talking about is Mike's pick, and it's called Dexter Stefanik. Yeah, this is a uh, great segment, fantastic segment. I can't cannot believe that neither I or Josh have not talked about the segment yet. I thought we had, but then I did my own research and looked back at the other episodes, and, and no, we talked about the Blind uh, River Valley Killer, which is a different sort of uh, rest stop area kind of uh, killing. Um, but uh, this one is from the first season. It's uh, the last segment that plays on the last episode of season one, which I finally finished. I know I'm way behind on the Amazon Prime episodes. Holy shit, man. I, I finally finished season one. But anyway, uh, I'm glad I did because then I was reminded of this segment, uh, Dexter St- St- Stefanik. Uh, in November of 1985, Dexter Stefanik was about to leave his son's farm near Corbett, Oregon for a long road trip. Dexter was a 67-year-old wit- widower from Wisconsin. He had come to stay with his son a few months earlier after his wife Vivian had died. But according to Dexter's son, David, as the first anniversary of Vivian's death approached, Dexter was ready to go back home. He came out, and we thought he'd probably spend the winter with us. And then it got to be a difficult time of year for him, and I tried to convince him not to leave. Winter had already set in, and there's really nothing he needed to go back to Wisconsin for. And that's the last I saw him. Dexter left his son's home early on Monday, November 18th, 1985. He told his son that to save time, he would pull into the rest areas when he got tired instead of looking for motels. Not necessarily the safest thing. On Tuesday morning, local sheriff Jim George was alerted to a, alerted to a car on fire at the Bad Route rest area in Montana. <laughs> you picked a bad route, motherfucker. Exactly. I mean, just the name alone. Bad route. I mean, the I, it's just so ironic. When I arrived at the rest area and the, and pulled in behind the vehicle, the inside was completely engulfed in flames. I went over and talked to the state highway department, and they informed me that they didn't see any person inside the vehicle. The car belonged to Dexter Stefanik. A little over a day had passed since he had left Oregon. The sheriff's department immediately searched the area. There's no trace of Dexter and no obvious signs of foul play. Sheriff Jim George brought in an arson expert to examine the car. The fire had been set deliberately, using gasoline. Sheriff George also noted that the driver's seat was pushed back all the way. Dexter Stefanik, being a short man, would have had the seat all the way up to the front to drive it. So it had to be a larger man driving that vehicle, six foot or larger. With no other clues, Sheriff George needed witnesses and a timeline. The car was discovered just after 10 a.m. Nearly two hours earlier, Fred Siegel, custodian of the Bad Route rest area, had arrived for work as usual. I go to the rest area between 8 o'clock and 8.30, and there was a pickup park there, but there was no one around. And I really didn't pay that much attention to it. Just with the whole Bad Route name, like, how did that even come to be? Well, it was between Bad Route and Satan's Armpit, so I had to pick one of the two rest stops, so I went with Bad Route. That's some sound logic. So about 15 minutes later, Clyde Mitchell, a highway maintenance supervisor, stopped at the rest area. Fred's pickup was there and a white Chevy pickup facing southeast. I saw Arizona plates on the back. 
I walked around the complete outfit and noticed it was a four-wheel drive Chevy with blue trim and a cow catcher on the front. At the time, I didn't think there was anything suspicious about it. Now, the term cow catcher, I always remember finding kind of funny. I remember when I was a kid, I asked one of my relatives about it, and they were, and I was like, does it catch cows? <laughs> and they're like, no. <laughs> I never even heard that term. Catcher. I never even heard that term until this episode. Like, I didn't know that's what that thing on the front of the uh, truck was called. It's that, it's that little, it's just like, it, it, I always thought it was like a, it's the, what police have on the front of their car to ram cars or whatever. Isn't it similar to that? Similar to that, I, I think this is on a lot of trucks and stuff like that. And I think they call it a cow catcher because maybe I, I think it might be because uh, in order to soften the blow, if you hit a cow, I could be wrong though, and you might want to look that up. Somebody on, out there will correct us. Someone out there will correct us, and, and we'll look like complete fools as usual. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> once again, soon after Clyde Mitchell left to complete his regular rounds. Fifteen minutes later, Fred Siegel saw Dexter Stefanik's brown Plymouth Horizon pull in. According to Fred, the driver got out carrying two large plastic containers. He was around six feet tall, between 35 and 40 years old, had real light skin, and no sign of anything wrong with him. Fred left the rest stop, and within 30 minutes, Dexter's car was ablaze. The case went nowhere for nearly four months. Then local residents Bill and Cindy Shaw made a routine run to a landfill 17 miles from the rest area. Little did Sydney know, Cindy know that she and Bill were stepping into a crime scene. My husband and I came out to dump some garbage, and there was a wallet laying on the ground. And it still had my, the, the driver's license in it. It was current. So I handed it to Bill, and we just started looking around, and there was a bunch of stuff in the dump that didn't belong there that hadn't been there when we were there before and we kind of tried to see if there was anything else that didn't quite belong in the dump bill wasn't prepared for what he found when he picked up a boot a man's foot partially hidden beneath a mattress Ew. the id of the body came in as no surprise it was dexter stefanik he had been beaten and shot twice in the head that's just awful I mean, it, it's awful that this man, this older man, was just accosted and then killed at a at the bad route rest area. But I mean, just dumping his body in a landfill and then just imagine being the person finding that. I think I think more about like the son because you know the son. Yeah, well, that too. The son I just mean, lost his mom, you know, and then yeah. like a late, you know, a few like a year later or so, he then he loses his dad, you know. And, yeah. and he loses his dad, like, knowing that he, he knowing he, he let his dad make a dumb decision, which, I mean, you can't control people. They have their own free will and all that stuff. But yeah. it's like, you know, I don't know. I'm sure there, he, he had that sense in his mind of, like, I probably could have done more to get him to stay here and blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. My dad's kind of that way too. He's very hard-headed and once he like makes a decision to do something, like he's going to do it no matter what anybody else says, you know? So when somebody's like that, it's just kind of like there's really nothing you can do. You just have to let them their seal their own fate, I guess. Um but yeah, I mean maybe there was a time in uh this country when you could like pull off into a rest stop and like spend the night there, but I don't, after watching Unsolved Mysteries, I sure as shit ain't never going to do it. Oh, that sounded real country of me. I sure as shit ain't never going to do it. 
I'll tell you what. Um, but yeah, that was uh, not not the smartest choice on his part, but maybe he was a more trusting guy and he thought that like that would be all right, you know? Well, I, d- I don't blame him. He probably did it many times and nothing had ever happened. So uh, it's not only just stubbornness, it's also... Well, nothing's happened. Why should I uh, expect or think that anything's going to happen to me? Uh, I've stayed at rest areas before with my parents, but I wasn't alone. See, that's the thing. I I was with my parents. Yeah, but as we saw with the the killing, the I-70 or whatever with the... the, Yeah, yeah, I I know. That doesn't really matter either. I mean, (laughs) uh, you know, it doesn't matter. You can be alone. You can be with your parents. You can be with your loved one. doesn't matter. Killers don't give a shit. They don't care. They show no mercy. So Lance Sheila was, uh, or Sahila was the coroner in Dawson County, Montana. He's quoted here. He says there were marks on his hands. There was damage done to his neck and throat area, and he had a bruised or damaged area on the front part of his skull. It was probably caused by a beating or some type of injury of that sort. But some of the evidence didn't quite add up. There was still money in Dexter's suitcase, making robbery an unlikely motive. Also, Dexter's clothing was found scattered around the area, but it was in good condition, as if it had just only recently been discarded. But according to the coroner, Dexter's body seemed to have been in the landfill for months. The condition of the body would indicate that it had probably been in the dump site from the time that the car was found burning until the time it was discovered. The whole thing also was like, okay, why why did somebody kill this old man? And why did they burn his car? I mean, it's just like there is it's, it is it's perfect for unsolved mysteries. I can see why this is a case that people remember because it's got that whole mysterious aspect to it. It's got like who killed him. We still don't know. It's still an unsolved mystery. Uh, and, and just the creepiness and the eeriness. A lot of people have remembered how creepy and eerie it was to them to just have an innocent sort of thing like a rest area and then have it become so sinister. So one week late, one week later, one week later, <laughs> the, the authorities found a final clue in the men's room. <laughs> one week later. <laughs> that's like, that's, that's almost like, like on our podcast, like whenever I take a bath, bathroom break and I come back, it's like, all right, one week later, let's talk about the other segment. Okay. <laughs> That is kind of funny, actually. One week later, uh, the authorities found a final clue in the men's room at the Bad Route rest area. There was a small line of graffiti written in pencil. It began with the words hot jock. Now, Unsolved Mystery says police have not released the entire message, and they but they believed it may have been linked to Dexter Stefanik's murder. But this is the actual message. It says, hot jock shot wad from Wisconsin. 11.85, Saturday the 3rd. And that's actually when it happened, right? Yeah, so it's like hot shock. Hot, 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 hot shock. Uh, hot shock, hot jock. Uh, hot jock shot Wad from Wisconsin. Try to say that five times fast. Wad, like W-A-D? Yeah, hot shot. <laughs> Holy Hot shit, Jock Mike. shot Wad from Wisconsin. Say that five times fast. Hot shot shot Wad yeah, from see? Wisconsin. No. Oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> Damn, that is crazy. All right, gang, there's a new uh, a new interactive thing for you to do out there. Try to say hot jock shot Wad 
than from Wisconsin. From Wisconsin. <laughs> Without calling it hot shot. It's really hard. <laughs> I'm just thinking of that Charlie Sheen movie. Hot, yeah, Hot Shots Part Du. Or Hot Shots. Yeah, I've actually seen those movies, believe it or not. When I was real Bloodiest low. movie ever. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, the coroner, Sahila, he believes a killer wrote it there for the police to find. Uh, he says, my own theory is that someone wanted us to see it. Hot Jot could be a CB handle. It referred to shot. It had Wisconsin in the gra- graffiti and a date indicating November. And it's also the name of uh, somebody on a, a certain message board who needs to stop being a lazy ass and uh, put together, <laughs> together a season guide for season three. But hey, whatever. Uh, but police only have two clues that might identify Dexter Stefanik's killer. The description of the suspect's vehicle and the sketchy description of the suspect himself. The vehicle was a white Chevy 4x4 with a wide blue horizontal stripe. It had a white camper shell top and a cattle guard on the front bumper. It also had Arizona plates with a Phoenix license plate holder. The suspect is middle-aged, at least 6 feet tall, light-complected, and clean-shaven. He may use the nickname or CB handle, Hot Jock. Now, in the Amazon Prime uh, segment, it doesn't show the car because, which is one of the things a lot of people remember because it was a sketch that was very vivid of what the car looked like. And I, I guess the Amazon Prime stuff, they cut the stuff out before they ch- show the phone number. I've yeah. noticed that. Um, but then you lose some things. So it's one little kind of nitpick about the Amazon Prime segments. Another nitpick... Uh, from the unsolved more mysteries website is they erroneously said okay no they they fixed it okay that was weird no i know actually i was looking at the wrong one no they fixed it i thought they said like season three for dexter stefanik but it was season three for the other one that we're going to talk about now the case is still unsolved no answers have been found to solve dexter's murder uh meanwhile the caretaker of the rest stop where dexter was found he died in 1997, at the age of 81, I don't know if there's any other caretakers who have took it, who have took his place or taken his place. Caretaker of the rest stop. Yeah. Jeez, uh, that's that's uh, that's probably a job you don't need a college degree for. <laughs> no. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Uh, I'm sorry, you don't have the right qualifications. <laughs> uh, you need to be a master's in rest stop caretaking. You need a master's degree in that. Uh, sorry, if if you want this nine fifteen an hour, you're gonna have to work for it. So yeah, I mean, it is a very eerie case because it's just one of those like, why? It's so bizarre because it's like, why did this happen? Like, what was the motive? Yeah, uh, you know, somebody just like like joy killing, you know, just killing yeah. for the, the the pleasure of it, you know. It's like that guy, the guy with the stringy blonde hair who just showed up and broke into somebody's camper and point, you know, pointed guns at them and you know shot this old guy's uh, wife and terrified him and shot him too but he managed to survive you know it's like that this thrill kill type stuff you know it's shit like this that like freaks me out about um like living on my own to a certain extent like for example 
Um, the other night I was um, filming um, footage for my new episode that I'm going to put on my YouTube channel. And so I'm in the living room and all my equipment's set up. And um, I hear some rumblings outside, like some voices. And it's like 2 a.m. in the morning. And I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, 2 a.m. on like a... It was like a Monday, I think. 2 a.m. on a Monday, you never really want to hear people's voices outside, you know, like, you know, arguing. That's never a good, you know... If it was on the weekend, then it's like, okay, they're partying, and it's like a drunk person, whatever. But on a work day, it's kind of weird. So I poke my head outside, and I hear, rah, 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 rah. And then the other person, which is my neighbor, goes, it's 2 a.m. in the morning. And the other person goes, so I know, uh, sorry, neighbor. And then, like, I see this guy's wearing an orange shirt, and he starts walking out of this guy's yard. And then at that point, I realize this guy is probably going door to door for some reason. And then I see him start to walk over to oh, no. my direction of my house. I'm like, <laughs> please, God, don't let me deal with this situation, whatever this is, because I, I just, I'm not in the mood. I'm, I'm you know... I don't like it when people come up to my door, which has already happened about three times now, including today. Um, that's another story. So I close my door and I, I shut my porch light off, which I'm sure he like clearly saw, you know, like, but he still, I, I hear him in the front yard and then pretty soon I hear his sandals on my steps, going up my steps. I'm like, son of a bitch. And then, ding, 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 he rings my doorbell, and I'm like, shit. Dun, 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 no, dun, don't dun. do that. It, 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 mine's not cool enough to do that. And it's very digital and shitty sounding. It's not like the actual I would, I would, I would love to have my doorbell just be the theme from Close Encounters. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I'm sure there's a way to do it, if there's a will. <laughs> there's a way. But anyway, he's, he, start, he rings my doorbell. And like I'm like not gonna open the door, you know, because of all the shit that I've seen on Unsolved Mysteries. I'm not opening the door, you know. We're gonna have to talk through the door for this interaction. You and don't want to open the door like Eddie Murphy in SNL and be like, "Who is it?" <laughs> no, so I just go, I go, "What?" You know, because I'm not. That's another thing. If someone's knocking on my door at 2 a.m., I'm not gonna be nice and cordial. It's like, yeah, oh, yeah. it's like, yeah, I was already awake. I was already in the living room doing shit. But he doesn't know that. So I'm trying yeah. to I'm trying to give off the impression that he's disturbing me from like sleep or something. I'm like, what? I, 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 I'm imagining you with like the steel door that like you slide open the little thing on the top <laughs> to, to show your eyes and then be like, what is the password? Yeah, <laughs> that's what I should have said. I should have said, what's the password? <laughs> Um, but I go, what? And he goes, I'm, I'm, uh, so-and-so from, uh, down the road. I'm your neighbor, blah, blah, blah. He's like, uh, you know, he's like, you've seen me walking down the road, you know, with the girl with the curly hair. And I go, I go, I've never seen you in my life. And he goes, well, have you lived here for longer than a year? And I'm like, no, I haven't. And he goes, well, anyway, my daughter's been in a uh, car wreck, and she goes to the University of Atlanta, and all I need is, is a gas can with a little bit of gas in it. Do you have that? And I was like, no, I do not. He's like, okay, sorry to bother you, and he walks away. Now, weird. yeah, that's all I have to think. That's the only thing I can even, like, make of it is that's weird because... I, I might have messed with him a little bit more. I would have been like, uh, you didn't say the magic word. 
<laughs> yeah, in retrospect, it's funny to think of all the things that you could say, but in in the moment, you're. Oh, I, I know, I know, totally. In the moment, you just totally. want this guy to get the fuck off your property because you don't yeah. know. You literally have no idea no. if he has a daughter, if he, you know, he wants you he to. He just op- wants free gas. I don't know what he wants. I don't think he was trying to, like, rob anyone per se, because surely no criminal would be stupid enough to go door-to-door waking up all the neighbors asking for something. <laughs> hey, you, you underestimate some dumb criminals. I mean, yeah, I, I remember one that I had. I was living with my parents, with my, my mom, and my stepmom, and my dad in Oklahoma City. And a friend of my stepmom, she stole one of our TVs, and then left a message, a handwritten note in the mailbox that pretty much said, oh, I'm sorry, I stole the TV, I needed the money, but I didn't take any of your son's stuff. Oh my gosh. I'll never forget that because it's hilarious. It really is. It's so funny. So yeah, anyway, all that to relate back to the fact that like hearing about shit like this, pulling off, you know, to these restaurants and stuff, it, it, it taints my thinking about things, you know, and I think it does for everybody else too. And that's why people are so fucking paranoid in this country. Yeah, well, you have a reason to be that nobody should be going around knocking on your door at two o'clock in the morning and asking for a fucking gas can. That's just... Yeah, and it, you know the thing about it is, is like he was middle aged, but he was he he wasn't elderly. He was young enough to know that there was probably like five or six other more viable options that he could have pursued rather than walking down door yeah. to door at two a.m. knocking on people's doors in hopes that one of them has a gas can with gas in it. You know, like so it's almost like. It was just weird because it's like yeah. none of it made sense about why you would even well, it's, do it's that. Well, it's a lot like this. You know, none of it made sense why Dexter was, was killed. And, and uh, you know, that's just something that is definitely prob- – it's absolutely haunting the son and, and everyone that knew Dexter. And, and it's just a very – and probably frustrating the police to just uh, still have, to have this case. It's just like we don't have any leads. We don't have anything. We don't have shit. We don't have anything. It's just a description, uh, a, a truck, a, a description of what the guy looks like, and a description of the truck that he was driving, a four by four. But I mean, that's all that they have to go with. Um, and another thing, you know, it's, it's the suddenness of it, and a lot like the road rage one. It's just shocking. And speaking of road rage, uh, I, I re- recently witnessed something like that today. You know, yesterday. I, I went. I was with my mom, and we went to Burgerville to get some, you know, get some drive-through. I got their chicken sandwich. Wait, there's a the place lo- called Burgerville. Yeah, it's a it's a Pacific Northwest type deal. I mean, they have a lot of natural ingredients and stuff like that. It's pricey, but it's good. Oh, okay. The chicken sandwich was really good. It was it's pricey, uh, but it was delicious. It was definitely worth it because it was a nice big piece of chicken. Uh, I got the crispy chicken one and had bacon. This this uh, uh, special sauce they use. Can you tell that and, it's actually uh, a piece of chicken cheese. breast rather yes. than like an amalgamation oh, of chicken? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, because that's it's what really I hate about like Wendy's or Burger King or McDonald's. Anytime you eat one of their chicken sandwiches and you bite into it, there's not like single I, sinewy strands of white meat it's like this this amalgamation I of still white like meat Wendy's regardless but you know I, I i get it but anyway we're in the drive-thru we're waiting to to take our order 
to you know give our order. I'm sorry, take it. And there's we look in the corner, you know, in the in the left hand corner across the street, and apparently there's this guy honking his horn at this car in front of him, and he gets out of his car and starts yelling at the guy or the gal in the car in front of him. And then my mom and I are like, what the hell was that about? And really, it is one of those, like, what the hell was that about? Like, why did he do that? I don't know why he did it. It looked like uh, the car was pretty far ahead and had a pretty wide space between him. And maybe, I guess maybe he thought he should have been further ahead and riding the other car on its ass. And then so he could pull up farther but that doesn't make any sense because that's not safe. That's like one of those stories that was kind of disappointing because you're like, and then he was honking his horn, and why did he do that? I don't know why he did that. It's like, oh, come on. I thought you were going to tell us why he did it. No, but I'm just saying I don't know for sure why he did it, but it sounds like it was something like that where he's just an asshole who was just upset that somebody decided not to, I guess, park the way, you know, stop in traffic, you know, at a stop sign, a stoplight, the way that he does. And he got out of his car and yelled at somebody about it. I'm not going to lie. I've developed uh, road rage over the years as I've gotten older. Because I was like, I think I think the older I've gotten, the more confidence I, I've gotten in the realm of like, I have just as much of a right to be here as any of these other I bastards. Mean, that's, that's fine. I mean, if you keep it in the car and you're just like, oh, fuck that guy or whatever. But, oh, I mean, no, get, I, I don't keep it in the car. When you get out of the car and stop the car and then stop whatever traffic that might be behind you. Well, yeah, that's that's yeah, you shouldn't do that. But I'm mainly talking about like, I, I will definitely give people the finger if they're being a dick. I will definitely brake check people. I did that the other day. I was in the uh, left-hand lane. I was going like 85 miles down the highway, and there's this big old fucking truck, big old redneck jacked-up truck. Out here in the south, people who drive those trucks feel like they can do anything because I got a big old fucking truck. I, look at the tires on this big motherfucker. I can do any. I got a tiny little penis. So this big old truck was behind me, just riding my ass, you know, just like really riding my ass. Man, I fucking slammed on the brakes and and I didn't slam on the brakes, but like I very, you know, much applied the brakes and uh, like, you know, when he drove by me, I rolled down my window, I flicked him off and I honked the horn. It was like, dude, get the fuck off my ass, (laughs) you dumb fucking redneck. And go and drive your big fucking truck somewhere else. Go go, go midden with your truck. That shit pisses me off, man. Like, I will definitely... I am not afraid to brake check somebody. I'm not afraid of them hitting me. Because in Florida, if you rear-end someone, it's their fault 100% of the time. Yeah, you know, uh, there's a place for that, I guess. <laughs> I, w- I, wouldn't, I wouldn't approach See, it Mike, that it, it's, way. it's psychos like me that you get to look forward to when you start driving on the road. <laughs> But, I mean, at least you're not stopping and and then getting out of the car and then, like, because that's what leads to stuff like what happened, like the guy that shoots the other guy or they get in a fight or then other traffic gets blocked up because you're the dumbass who stopped in the middle of the fucking road because you wanted the other car in front of you to be riding the other car's ass. And so then you could ride their ass and then it's just like uh, that's not necessarily safe and that's none and nobody necessarily has to do that. Uh, That's not really there's not a legal requirement. 
when you're at a stop sign to do that. Or maybe he was a psycho motherfucker who followed this person all this way because they cut him off or whatever miles ago. And if that's the case, I mean, that's scary. That's Talking really about scary. all this traffic uh, reminded me of yet another review. Uh, uh, I, I don't know how you could call this review, but it was on our uh, Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries if you'd like to become a fan. But they left a review on there, and it was this chick, and she was she basically t- said that she listened to the podcast because of how dumb we were, and she likes listening to just just how deep into... I do not remember seeing that one. It was, okay. you commented on it, and you said, is this April Fool's or something like oh, that? Oh, yeah, that one, yeah. Sure. Yeah, and uh, she said something to the extent of uh, what really what really took the cake was when they talked, when neither one of them knew how a four-way stop worked. Now I remember telling you that a four or four way stop was whoever stops first gets to go first, and then it kind of goes down the line from there. Is that not right? Is that not the right way to do it, or is there some kind of you got to yield to the right hand side or some shit like that? I don't know. Again, I'm sure people will tell us on the uh, Facebook group, which probably is also alone on on not knowing what a four way stop is. I mean, there's probably people who have permits who don't know what the hell it is. Well, no, I know what a four. I, what I know it what is. it is, but I just like I I was taught probably wrong wrongly by my mother that when you come to a four way stop, it's whoever gets there first and then second and third and all that. That's kind of the order of who goes, which has always worked for me every time. Uh, every time I've come to a four-way stop. But anyway, if you driving expert nerds out there who've memorized the driving book know how it works, uh, feel free, you know, I, and do you, don't you like how I call you nerds? Like, yeah, the, knowing the rules of the road is for losers, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> I just drive how I fucking want. Hey, I get there. I still get there. Um, um, all right, let's go on to the next segment but here. But, yeah, I don't have anything else to say about Dexter. Um, it, it's just a very sad, tragic case. And- yeah. Definitely a memorable one, though. Pour out a pour out a glass for old Dexter and his family. Peace be with you. Uh, our next case is from season three. Um, I had already seen this on the VHS rips, but when I saw us on season three yet again on uh, Amazon Prime, I was like, "Oh yeah, what?" Like I get into a bad habit of seeing great segments and then I don't write it down and then I forget about it. And when I came upon this one again, I was like, why the fuck did I not write this down to talk about this on the <laughs> podcast? Because this is, this is great. This is like right- It is a great one. I, 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 this is one of my favorites because I, it talks about a, an era of hacking computer uh, technology that is long gone, but it's still extremely fascinating. Yes. And then it's just crazy how this one kid, this one teenager, ended up just hacking all of this different stuff it's like a real life war games i love i love old tech you know like i'm a i'm a fan of old technology and and old like the very beginnings of the internet the very beginnings of all this kind of stuff unsolved mysteries was a great show in in that sense as well because this this segment is just straight out of the early ages of both internet security uh telephone security pirating hacking all it's all there uh, and yeah. nobody dies either so it's 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 nice no and also kevin himself went on to have a pretty big career even after he was apprehended yeah which so. these hackers usually do if they're caught they usually get a job with the government you know which like is after, crazy yeah well you know what <laughs> they have a useful skill set and most people who are arrested yeah. are just 
drones or psychos or yeah. peasants, you know, they just they, they, they don't have anything exceptional about them that can be exploited by the government. But he did. So Kevin Paulson. Um, now, this segment starts off. And it's like uh, Robert Stack is um, he's inside of a loud telephone like substation and, yeah. he, and he's having to raise his voice. And it sounds kind of funny. Cause like he can still do that badass Robert Stack voice even over this like really loud din of machinery. So I got, thought that was kind of funny. Cause he's like, you know, having to be like, inside the labyrinth of the telephone company's huge computer system, one feels a sense of insignificance. <laughs> he's like having to talk really loud. <laughs> I can just imagine the Robert Stack cracking up while trying to do yeah. that. And then like after, you know, maybe there's multiple takes he has to do, or even after he take, does that take, he's still speaking loudly. And then they they have to, the director has to be like uh, it it's we don't have to do that anymore Robert. <laughs> All right, going back to a segment here though it he goes uh, it seems impossible that any single person could jam up these sophisticated works talking about like the telephone systems. Yet think of it. All the interactive computers across the country are linked by telephone lines. Both private citizens and classified government operations can be vulnerable to a computer genius run amok. Kevin Polson grew up in the Los Angeles suburb of North Hollywood. His mother died when he was still young. One of Kevin's friends described him as very bright with great potential, but very shy. Kevin received his first computer on his 16th birthday. Like most would-be hackers, he adapted a colorful pseudonym, Dark Dante. Eventually, he discovered a telephone number for ARPANET, a telephone network funded by the Pentagon. It links university and think tank computers across the country by telephone lines. For Dark Dante, ARPANET was a tantalizing challenge. After connecting his modem to the ARPANET telephone number, Kevin realized he was hooked up to military research at the University of California at Berkeley. He needed a password that would grant him access to sensitive documents inside the computer at Berkeley. He, gets, he guessed several passwords with no luck. He then tried the university's initials, UCB. Kevin was inside of ARPANET. Dark Dante's activities were soon detected by UCB. When Kevin slipped and used his real name in one instance, instead of Dark Dante, he was trapped. Now, this, this harkens back, like I was saying, to the early days of computing, when there was barely any extra measures of security. A password was all they really had. Yeah. Um, this is obvious by the University of Berkeley using the password UCB. You couldn't even use a three-letter three password today for a free email account, no. let alone no. for this huge mainframe. And he was also able to do multiple attempts at the password without ever being locked out. That's another security feature that would have definitely locked him out if this had been modern day. So, but well, you also have the telephone line thing. I mean, we our internet is not connected through a telephone line. It's connected through cable lines. There's a difference between the two. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much that that aspect of it affected the security but yeah i mean that was definitely well i mean well also the secure i mean well i mean the security probably uh, i mean internet was in its infancy so a lot of you didn't really have that to help with you know prevent security type protocols and things like that it was a lot of computer programs and stuff and um but yeah it's a lot like the movie war games which have you seen that film with matthew broderick what do you think mike i want to say no Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. 
I think you should see it because if you like this case, I, I think you'd like the movie because it's very similar sort of thing. Matthew Broderick plays a young hacker who winds up hacking into uh, a top secret government computer program and then almost starts World War Three and has to find a way to stop it. That's cool. I might check it out. So anyway, uh, blissfully unaware, Kevin continued his hacking activities, giving authorities even more ammunition against him. On the morning of September 22nd, 1983, the L.A. D.A., the Los Angeles defense attorney or district district attorney, there you go, (laughs) took Kevin's computer. Because of his age, he was only given a warning that his computer activities were illegal. I'm just imagining that. The warning apparently fell on deaf ears. Yeah. I'm just imagining that situation where they catch Kevin and be like, "What, Kevin, what you're doing is very bad. It's against the law. Stop hacking into government mainframes, okay? I'm only going to tell you this once. Oh, but you let Billy do it. Well, uh, Billy got his warning too. Now, go run run along now. I'm just imagining Kevin being like, yeah, okay, all right. I won't be hacking into any more government mainframes. And then they leave, and I'm like, fuck that guy. I'm hacking tonight. I'm just going <laughs> to tell you guys right now. I'm just going to throw it out right now. Uh, my opinion of Kevin is I think he's a badass. Uh, yeah. I think Kevin's the shit, honestly. Uh, Kevin is one of Kevin Paulson is one of my more admired people who is a bad guy at first. Um, on Unsolved Mysteries. Um, I have always been into, like, hacking, but not enough to actually be smart enough to, like, do anything with it. I tried hacking when I was younger. Uh, I tried getting into... I tried using this... uh, See, the problem was, by the time I got into hacking, um, MS-DOS, which was... um, kind of what you needed to use in this particular instance. MS-DOS was phased, was getting phased out, and I was reading an old guide. I think I got, uh, I think it was the Anarchist Cookbook or something like that um, that, I was, that I was reading from. Classic did book, Did you get that on the, the deep web? <laughs> I, did not, I did not get it on the deep web, but I did get it off of LimeWire. Um, oh, good old LimeWire, man. I remember LimeWire. I remember downloading music off of that, take forever and a day. Yeah, this is why uh, I have such a rock hard erection for talking about this segment because it like touches on all the shit I was like into as a kid. And now LimeWire though is is oh uh, yeah, now, wire. Now, don't even. <laughs> now it's like asking for aids for your computer basically yeah. if you fuck around with LimeWire now. Um, so uh, during the next year, Kevin took a high school equivalency exam and moved out of his parents' house. But Dark Dante had not died with Kevin's move. He had simply changed locations. In his off hours, Kevin continued to cruise the electronic highway. I love how they call it, the electronic highway. That's such an outdated term for the internet. He continued to cruise the electronic highway, but this time he never gave his name or location. On February 9th, 1988, a few months before yours truly was born, the owners of a strange facility made a routine... A strange facility. A storage facility, not a strange facility. (laughs) Let's let's rewind that one back. On February 9th, 1988, the owners of a storage facility made a routine stop at a locker whose rent had not been paid. Standard procedure in these cases were to confiscate the items in the locker, but this time it was something the owners of the storage unit had never seen. It appeared to be stolen telephone company equipment. The owners notified the authorities... And then telephone company investigator John Von Brock, along with the local police, arrived immediately. 
So the phone police are real people. They, that was not a myth that was perpetuated when we were little kids. There are the phone police out there, and they are listening. Uh, do you remember that shit? Like being a kid, like like the phone police. Like I don't you... remember that. I just remember a scene in Ghostbusters Two where they're trying they're trying to dig for the slime, trying to find the slime underneath the city, and then they have the whole thing where they're masquerading as construction workers to dig into the ground and find the 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 entrance to the underground subway with the slime in it and, and they're all like uh trying to dig and then the phone company comes in and the cops are there it's like we don't we, you know we're not, we called and you're not with the phone company you're not with any of this so what the hell is going on here it's like uh you know we're digging for the phone you know it's like the 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 phone lines are over there because <laughs> one of the guys the pe guy is talking to the ghostbusters and he's like the phone lines are over there you're digging in the wrong place <laughs> and, and, and then and then the you know uh vagman is all like he smacks one of the guys on the head he's like yeah the phone lines are over there <laughs> didn't i tell you and then they're they're all like, "Where did you get all this equipment?" I don't know. Where do you think this came from? The sky. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I totally, when I think of phone police, I think of that that scene. It's like the phone lines are over there. No, we were. I think <laughs> I remember hearing like as a kid, um, if you dialed a certain number, um, like star something or other, it wasn't star sixty nine. Oh no, my maybe maybe it was star sixty nine. Some, I think one of the older kids told me this. They said if you dial that number, the phone police will come. And there's actually a episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark on Nickelodeon uh, that dealt with the phone police as well. Anyway, sorry. Maybe to, I was too young to really dude, get the phone we're the, we're the police. Dude, we're the same age. Don't pull that too young shit. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't even try to pull that too young shit with me. I'm just saying maybe I was just – I meant like – because mental, because I I have uh, Asperger's, so I I was actually like three years behind developmentally, <laughs> so usually you know yeah. around that time. So probably what I meant by too young is probably I was too young to really be cognizant and really remember something like the phone police. True. Anyway, um, that then they interview the John von Brock phone police scary guy, and he said we found a storage locker that contained pieces of electronic equipment, pay phones, a computer printout of unpublished Soviet embassy numbers, etc. That's not the kind of material one would find at a swap meet or find in a dumpster. It was obviously stolen property. Now on the West Coast, they call flea markets swap meets. Just for FYI, um, the locker was under the name John Anderson. What? That ain't my damn storage unit. I'll tell you what, them boys whacking off in my storage unit. Uh, John Anderson Mr. Is, Anderson. Yeah, Mr. Anderson's from Beavis and Butthead, obviously. So any chance I get to do any voices from that show, I will take those opportunities. But the name was under John Anderson, which was a fake name. But other items inside the locker contained the name Kevin Paulson. Don't! Fucking forehead smack on that one. Dark Dante had been caught again. Authorities showed up to Kevin's house and apprehended him. He agreed to a consent search of his apartment. Police were shocked to find Kevin had a complete wiretap facility in a spare bedroom. <sighs> what the fuck? <laughs> oh, what are your hobbies, Josh? Oh, I like playing music and making uh, YouTube videos. Well, what about you? Oh, I like uh, building wiretap facilities in my house and listening to government conversations and shit. No big deal. Um, I wonder if Donald Trump thought that uh, Kevin Paulson might have also been involved in the uh, wiretapping, you know, because it's a whole big, a con all a big conspiracy, you know. 
Hey, I'm not getting into that with a 10-foot pole. I, I kind of mixed two sayings together just then. Not getting into that with a 10-foot pole. Not going to touch that with a 10-meter cattle prod. <laughs> there you, exactly. You are on my same wavelength of uh, mental fuckery over here. Uh, so anyway, uh, after they found his little uh, wiretapping facility... Um, it was quoted as saying, one of the agents was quoted as saying, the equipment in the switch room not only allowed Kevin to enter data systems, ours and other people's, but it also gave Kevin the ability to monitor people's phone conversations without the parties being aware that they were being monitored. Incredibly, authorities also found photos of Kevin that he took of himself breaking into a telephone switching trailer, then using the equipment inside. <laughs> Kevin's ego provided the evidence the telephone company needed to bring in the FBI. The mouse dude, he's kind of a dumbass. He's cool. He's yeah, kind of oh yeah, no, he's definitely slow. Uh, in, in, you know, common sense, in the common sense area. He's like a, a savant, you know. In the well, can you imagine that? Like, just nowadays, somebody hacking and going into all these places. Yes, I can. Let me take a selfie. Uh, yeah, I, I can totally imagine <laughs> that. I can imagine that being on their Instagram, their Snapchat, <laughs> like them going live on Facebook as they do it. Yeah, I can totally see that happening now. Um, so, William... <coughs> excuse me. William E. Smith... Uh, which was one of the FBI agents on the scene. This this guy was kind of a cool cat, you know. He kind of reminded me of, uh, I don't know, some smooth talking like you know black guy from like some movie. Uh, he was like, we determined that the hacks that Paulson was involved in had escalated. We found out that Kevin had penetrated the U.S. government computer and had transferred the passwords of the computer via electronic mail to individuals. And I also loved how he called it electronic mail. Email, obviously. Um, yeah. <laughs> electronic mail. Because back in those days, if you didn't know, you know, like, you, you pretty much had to use the long form term everything. Honey, what's the World Wide Web address for the Yellow Pages? <laughs> <laughs> so, investigators found... I don't know, honey. Check out the electronic mail yeah. that a friend I of ours sent you. Sent an you. electronic message... Um, to your computer operating system, Windows 95. Windows 95 was a really great operating system, by the way. I loved that operating system. I spent so much time on that. I digress. Um, investigators found that someone matching Kevin's description had illegally entered several telephone facilities using a false ID. Quote, we discovered that Mr. Paulson had actually entered these buildings. Von Brock, the scary telephone police guy, said that. He's actually not scary. I don't know why I keep saying he's a scary telephone guy. He actually came across as uh, pretty neutral. Um, so then they show, uh, the reenactment shows Kevin just casually, like, sauntering into the building, just showing his ID to one of the workers. And the worker's like, uh, yeah, how can I help you? And he goes, uh, I'm here to check the ESS machines. And the guy just looks at the ID and he goes, oh, yeah, the ESS equipment is upstairs. So once... Kevin was inside the building, or the intruder, I should say, because they they didn't have like hardcore evidence at this point that it was him. Once the intruder found the phone numbers that could be used to get inside the phone company's computer system, he also stole manuals, switching equipment, and a test set, which is like this looked like this like blue lunchbox thing, but apparently you could do a bunch of shit with it, uh, like the one that was found in Kevin's apartment. Kevin had also infiltrated. U.S. military computer transmissions containing classified army information, 
Authorities also believed he obtained classified information about overthrown Filipino President Ferdinand Marcos. What a beautiful tie-in to another Unsolved Mysteries segment, Marcos's Buddha, which is about uh, Roger Rojas and the treasure that he found, which I yep. can't believe we haven't talked about that segment yet. It's one of my favorites. Um, in addition, he may have wiretapped the phone conversations of his friend Sean Randall. Which I love how they said all this, like, like they, they said all this big shit he did. You know, he infiltrated U.S. military computer transmissions. He obtained classified information about overthrown Filipino president. And he may have wiretapped the phone conversations of his friend Sean. <laughs> he may have heard Sean say that he thought Kevin's girlfriend was a total quote-unquote babe. Um, I, I think that's funny. You know. Or you might have heard him say that he thought Kevin's mom was hot. Yeah, and I'm sure they wrote it like that on purpose, but I thought that was that was a, a nice little touch there. Because uh, the, Kevin's mom's got it going oh, on. Jesus, please no, Mike. Please no. <laughs> no. Uh, one of our <laughs> listeners might get that. No. <laughs> um, the test That's set... still fa- bad, Josh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the test set found in Kevin's apartment and his possession of the unlisted Soviet numbers... <laughs> made the authorities think that Kevin might be involved in espionage. On October 19, 1989, a two-year investigation resulted in a 19-count indictment against Kevin and two other hackers. They were charged with embezzlement, conspiracy, computer fraud, wiretapping, and theft of public property and records. The two other men were arrested and await trial. Kevin Paulson has fled. Um, Quoting William Smith again, the uh, FBI agent... Uh, involved in the case he says now this was this this is when i thought that he you know he was uh adding some pageantry to his lines here because you know he could have just made a straight up statement but he he goes we feel that kevin probably started out as any other hacker because of curiosity but as the years wore on his curiosity became unsatisfied he crossed the line from mere curiosity to intentionally committing criminal acts to further his quest for power that gives us concern Law enforcement, government, or even private citizens out there, Paulson definitely has the potential to do harm to these three. Beautiful, beautiful William Smith. Yeah. Not only are you a great FBI agent, but you're quite the wordsmith. Um, We have a great update, though. He's since been captured. Shortly after the broadcast, FBI investigators received information that Paulson was living in the Los Angeles area. Authorities located several of Paulson's acquaintances, and one of them stated that they had seen Paulson at Hughes Market and frequented that location. Three weeks later, Paulson returned to the market. Manager Brian Bridges recognized Paulson when he entered the store and notified the FBI. However, Paulson left before agents arrived. One of the investigators decided to do surveillance on the market, and shortly before midnight, Paulson returned once again. Once he entered the market, the agent told Bridges that Paulson was once again at the store. While checking him out, two store clerks tackled Paulson to the ground, and he was soon arrested. Paulson pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 54 months in prison. After he was released, he changed his life for the better by becoming a journalist and making a computer script that helped locate over 700 sex offenders on MySpace. Now, if... Kevin doesn't get the award for being one of the more badass perpetrators on Unsolved Mysteries. I don't know who does. Because, yeah, he did some shit that was 
I'm not even going to say it was bad. In my opinion, I, I don't... I mean, he didn't do anything. He did... I mean, there's rumors that he might have was giving information to these other people, but it, that's not really been confirmed. Um, and, I mean, if he was giving information and passwords to, like, other countries and stuff and taking money for that, that is a bit sketchy, and that is not good. But, you know, if he was just hacking for fun and didn't really harm anybody, yeah, he tended to break the law, but... I wouldn't say what he did was – I mean not technically. I mean he did break the law. But I'm not saying what he did was like on the par with somebody who robbed somebody or, or murdered them. Or like the guy who said, oh man, I want to buy this computer from you and then ended up killing this guy's wife and then almost killing this other guy. Or they'd kill that guy or they both die. That's another one I want to talk about. I forgot exactly the name of the segment, but it was extremely shocking and brutal. And I was just like, holy fuck, all over a computer? It was like some special effects. Yeah, I remember what. Sort remember of what computer or something like that. But what I like yeah. about this one is like, it's like what his friend said who was um, who was being interviewed. It was this, this uh, one of his lady friends or whatever. She was like, Kevin is more interested in knowing how to do harm to somebody, but not doing it. He just wants to know that he can. And I get that to a certain extent. Like, when I was younger, like I said on the podcast previously, like, I learned how to make napalm. And, like, I learned how to do, like, certain things. Not because I wanted to do any harm, and I didn't do any harm. I just wanted to know. I was curious. Curiosity, you know? So, I don't think he did anything bad. I mean, yes. Uh, well, <sighs> breaking in and stealing shit, yes, that was, that was not cool. But, I mean, I don't know, dude. When, it's not when, cool, bro. When we're, cool. when we're on this podcast week after week talking about rapes and murders and dismemberings, I look at something like this and I'm like, ah, go and have your fun, kid. You know, it just seems so much less... Uh, intense. Intense compared to the other shit that we talk about on here every week. So, I don't know. I loved this segment. It's on season three on uh, Amazon Prime. You should go check it out. Um... I'm about to have to go, but before that, we're going to, of course, leave you with the uh, coup de grace, as they might say in the French language. Um, the, the interview with Suzanne Kelsey. But before that, uh, we're going to do a... We haven't done this in a while, but, um, you know, we, you, have, you have your fellow listeners out there, and you may not know much about your fellow listeners. Well, this is the time where I tell you a story that happened... Uh, to one of your fellow listeners, or I don't know, maybe it didn't happen. It could have. That's for you to decide. Our listener that that I want to profile this week is a man by the name of Rafael Alejandre. Um, not a lot of people know this, and he told me this story. Uh, he was a Vietnam veteran, and he was a drifter. And um, he wandered back in the day into this small Washington town in search of an old friend. Um... But he was met with all this intolerance and brutality by the local sheriff, whose name was uh, Will Teasel, I think he was saying. Uh, when this Teasel guy and his deputies uh, tried to restrain and shave Raphael, and I guess in a, uh, like a humiliation kind of thing, um, he had a flashback to his time as a prisoner of war. And after that, Raphael actually unleashed his fury on these officers. He narrowly escapes this manhunt 
Um, but it will take his former. It took his former commander to save the hunters from the hunted. Now, that's a crazy story, you know. And that's all you know. It's is it is it a story? Did I mean I I think it really happened. I mean, I, but who's to say? But uh, that is a crazy story about Raphael. Man, I'm glad you made it out of that situation. It sounds crazy. Um, so I'm wonder I'm wondering Raphael if they you know pushed you, you know don't push it, <laughs> don't push it, or I'll give you a war you won't believe. Oh, so you talked to him too, Mike? Because that sounds like <laughs> similar things that he told me. Well, so that was that. That was all his... well, it was something to eat. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, so you did talk to him? Okay. Yeah, because these are things that he said. So that was his story, folks, and. Uh, we're going to be uh, working back down the list here because I have some more stories for our other Patreons because um, I've just I changed the tiers around a few weeks ago. We have a bunch of $5 Patreons um, and I have to do stories for them as well. If you would like your own story to appear on this podcast, uh, something crazy that happened to you that we can tell everybody about, um, consider supporting us on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries and uh you even get other bonus content like extra um segments that we talk about and um just overall goodies um so yeah consider doing that so without further ado ladies and gentlemen here is the interview i had with suzanne kelsey enjoy i i've, I've went back and i've rewatched the segment several times now um Susie, is it okay if i call you Susie? yeah okay i, I didn't I'm from the South, so sometimes they want me to call Mr. and Mrs. and yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, no. all that stuff. So. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. My mom always told me, she's like, I don't want you guys calling me, I don't want you to say yes, ma'am, because it makes me feel old. That's what my mom always said, but, uh, <laughs> I, you know, you never know. Um, yeah, this is true. So, uh, how, did you, how did you originally even, um, were you a fan of the show Unsolved Mysteries? Did they reach out to you? Did you reach out to them? How did that even start? Um, well, besides the fact that the house that we bought had been, um, we had had all kinds of stuff going on with it, and um, we decided one point in time our neighbor knew about it, and this is where kind of the whole thing started, was our neighbor worked for the local paper and knew about our ghost and our story and wanted to do a Halloween edition about our ghost in Fish Springs. And so she did an article on it. And then after that, we started getting phone calls from all kinds of different newspapers wanting to do more stories on it. And eventually we ended up with um, pretty much all of the paid newspapers in the state of Nevada doing stories on it. And we were learning more about the history of our house through the research that they were doing. Um, the Las Vegas Review Journal did a big thing in their, their Nevadan section of their paper, which is the historical one, mm-hmm. had heard about it, and they interviewed us, and we told them, you know, the story of what had happened and everything, and then they actually started looking into it. They had some, went through some, some of the assessor's offices or whatever, and traced it down to find out who the original owner of the house was, who originally had it built. Um, in Virginia City, which is where it was um, where it was built, and we found out a lot more information from that article, from their research about the original owner and all more of the history on the house before we bought it. And 
uh, we were joking because a lot of the newspaper, one article would trigger another one, somebody else would call us. We ended up with National Enquirer wanted to do something on it. They took the story but never ran it. Then uh, a little while later, and, and my husband had said that, he goes, God, what's next? You know, the Enquirer, and sure enough, they called, but they didn't run the story. And then a little while later, another newspaper called, and it was um, World Weekly News, which was a sister newspaper of the Enquirer. And they ran it, and it went national. And they actually had us, they had FedEx come and check out the photo and the negative and everything. And they ran it through a guy that used to work for the Pentagon, um, for, he worked for the Pentagon for seven years under computerized photographic analysis and verified the authenticity of the negative and the picture and everything like that. And so we kept, it kept kind of going from joke to joke every time somebody would call wanting to do the story. And then Jim, you know, my husband says, well, what's next, you know? And so we get a phone call. We had moved to California. We had already thought we had the house sold. Um, we had some people trying to buy it, and we moved to California. And we got a call from um, from our niece who lived in Hillsburg. Somebody was trying to reach her because the local paper in Hillsburg had decided to run an article because it was my husband's cousin worked for the newspaper there. And so Unsolved Mysteries, um, Stan Br Stanley Brown worked for Cosgrove, Cosgrove Mirror Productions. He used to go subscribe to small-town papers and look for stories of interest that they would then research for Unsolved Mysteries. So she called us and said that this guy had called us. He was going to be calling. And uh, she had given him our phone number, and my husband answers the phone, and the guy says, this is Stanley Brown from unsolved mysteries and he looks at me and he goes it's for you hon and i go really who is it he goes unsolved mysteries oh my gosh so it kind of went through this long chain of you know it went it went through world weekly news which was a national newspaper it went it pretty much went everywhere and then it came back to our local town which is where, where we were living then in Hillsburg, um which is where they caught the story on it, and they came and interviewed us there to see if they wanted to run the story, and we didn't figure it would go anywhere, and sure enough, they called back a couple weeks later and said, we want to do your show, you know, so. So, I, you're, you're, the first, you're the first people that I talked to that actually uh, were, were involved in, you know, one of these haunting kind of stories. Uh, I've talked to yeah. a few people from the show already. I don't know how they keep finding our stuff. It's on the internet. I guess we're the only podcast that, that really focuses on uh, Unsolved Mysteries, the show, but... Um, so, like, how did that process work as far as um, when you went in and, and, I mean, I'm assuming you met John Cosgrove and Terry Moyer and all that, and uh, did, did no, they... No, we met, we met with, like I said, Stanley Brown was the one who interviewed us. He's the researcher for the show. Oh, uh, okay. And then I was working at, it was funny, I was working at Hewlett Packard down in Roner Park at the time after they decided to do the show, and that's how I found out. I got a call at Hewlett Packard where I worked. And this guy says, um, I'm Dan Gomez. He says, I'm the director. He says, we want to do your show. And he called me up at work. And I had to go to my supervisor's phone. And he says, he says, yeah, we want to do your, we want to do your story. And they wanted to set it up for time and everything. And I mean, it was the most, it was hysterical because the guy is telling us, he's saying, you know, from what we had told um, his researcher about it, 
the different things he was asking me, certain things and what different parts of the story they wanted to cover. And, you know, we had told him about when we'd be in bed and hear this noise like footsteps and all this other noises and stuff. And so he asked me, he says, he says, yeah, so we've figured out about three or four aspects of your story that we want to do. And then he goes, so have you ever done a bed scene on TV? It's <laughs> like, what? <laughs> so he explained that from our conversation with the, the um, researcher, that was part of what they wanted to do for the show, do a thing of what happened, like when we'd wake up in the night and hear footsteps right. or hear the noises and stuff like that. And so it was, you know, it turned out to be a, a really fun thing. It was like a week vacation, you know, when they actually did the thing and the guy, the guys and crew and everything were just great. It was, you know, you couldn't have planned a better vacation. So, so you actually were, you actually participated in the reenactment then? Yes, my husband and I did. The girls, our daughters didn't because by then they were a lot older. Oh, okay. Um, they had they hired two little actresses out of Reno because the house is in Gardner, is outside of Gardnerville, Nevada. So they had a crew from. They hired casting. They hi- cast two little girls to play Denny and Jennifer in the reenactment of what happened. Our son by then was eight years old or seven years old. No, he was eight. Take it back. Anyway, and so they hired a baby as the uh, to play him as the baby because um, when they did the reenactment on him, it was of me taking pictures of him when he was seven right. years old when the picture of the ghost showed up. So they had a guy playing, you know, the guy with his son there as the, you know, that we got that baby to use, you know, they had cast the baby too for to play our son yeah and just to just to recap and i were actually in the reenactment yeah just to recap for the uh listeners uh you the picture you're referring to is there was a scene where um you were snapping pictures of your at that point newborn son and when the pictures were actually developed there was a photo of a man in the pictures and you had not taken a picture of a man, but he just happened right. to be so, in there. Yeah. So what happened if you? I don't know. I don't know how old you are. What kind of? If you're familiar with photography and stuff, but back then a roll of film had 24 pictures on it. Right. And the camera that I had used those flash cubes that had, you know, that it took I think six pictures on each. So the flash cubes took, you know, there was 18 flash was all I had for a roll of 25 pictures. Okay. So I had taken the first 18 with Flash, and I was getting ready to go back from my leave of my maternity leave of absence, and I wanted to hurry up and get this roll of film developed so I'd have the pictures to take back when I returned to work. And so I propped our son up in the infant seat on the couch or love seat next to a lamp, figuring, okay, I've got to, I should have enough enough light for the rest of the pictures to come out. And each one of the pictures that I took had our son with a different stuffed animal next to him in his infancy with him. And I took them and I went, got, got the pictures taken. The last six were taken without flash. And so I went to pick the pictures up in a couple of days and my sister worked at the photo department of Rayleigh's um, shopping center. So when I went to pick to get the pictures, she was working there. And I opened them up, and she goes, oh, they have the baby, and let me see them. So I opened them up, and the very top picture, which was always the way it went, was the last picture on the film was the first one on the top, the way they developed it. And so um, I opened the thing, and here's a picture of this man 
And it's like, wait a minute, these aren't my pictures. Hmm. I don't know who these are. And she goes, are you sure? And I flipped to the next one and I said, well, yeah, the rest of them, this, the rest of them are Scotty, but you know, I don't know who this is, this man. And we were joking and saying, oh, well, um, you know, she says, ooh, maybe it's Samuel, you know. And I said, yeah, right, you know, we kind of joked about it and stuff. But um, I started I started checking. I had her check how they actually developed the film to see if they ran it some through some kind of processing thing with other roles back-to-back that maybe it could have um, overlapped in processing from somebody else's film. And she checked with them and the way they processed it. They said, no, we do one roll at a, film, at a time. If that picture, you know, if it's there, it's your picture. And I'm thinking, well, still, I that picture was supposed to have been of our son in, at seven weeks old. And I went, took him to work with me the following couple of days when I went back to work. And we had a photo lab at the place where I worked. And I asked them to check it out. And they blew up the negative and were trying to look to see if there was anything that could tell them what was going on. And they couldn't find out anything. And so we were looking at it, and somebody asked me, they said, well, you saw the picture, but is it on your negative? And I said, well, I never really looked. Um, You know, at at this time, this was before I had them run it through that. And uh, sure enough, it was there. And the way it worked was that the first um, of the sets of, they they had the 24 roll of film, had six sets of little clips of the the film, where each one had four, it had one through four, then five through eight, and on like that. Well, the last six pictures were the last six that were taken without flash. And on those last two strips, the very last, of four was blank. The one before that had uh, the four pictures on that were had the last two pictures that I took of my son. Then the first one that I took without flash was blank, and the second one I took without flash had this man on it. And then the last four were blank. So it was definitely on my same strip of film that had my actual son's pictures that were taken with flash. So I know it was on my film, but the fact that. There was nobody there other than my son in his infancy when I took that picture was what really made us believe that that could have been Samuel. Um, our, our other daughter, Jennifer, was the one who, from the time she was like two years old, was psychic and was always telling us predictions, things that were going to happen, um, or things that she told us were going to happen, and sometimes there was other events that were scheduled that we knew what she was saying couldn't be true that would turn out to be true. And she was always telling us stuff that was gonna happen, you know, from the time she was two and, you know, for the next few years and stuff. And so when we bought this house and moved it out and all this stuff started happening, a gal I worked with, was always, I was always telling her at work, you know, about weird things that were happening that couldn't be explained away and that something was going on in our house. And so she had told me that her husband was psychic and that him and his family had always communicated, um, you know, without having to talk. They always knew when everybody was okay. They didn't have to telephone to do this and stuff. And so she says, well, he can tell you if you've got something out there, you know, if there's something going on. Because, um, you know, this was, this was before our son was born. And so she was the one who, over Thanksgiving weekend, before our son was born, or a couple years earlier, um, 
he had told us that we did have a ghost, that his name was Samuel, that he wasn't there to hurt anybody, but he was there because of our daughter, Jennifer, and the fact that she was sensitive to things, and that he was just there to watch over them, the kids. And so when the event of the picture taken when our son was born, we had moved out of that house. We thought we had it sold. We'd moved into town where it would be closer to the hospital when I was pregnant with him. And the same daughter who was psychic, after he was born, had told us that he had moved into town with us. And I said, oh, no, he lived, you know, ghosts live in old houses, you know. They don't move into track homes and stuff like that, you know. I was trying to tell her. And she says, no, he moved in with us. She, she had spent the night at a friend's house down the block, and she said that he came there and kind of rescued her. And I'm thinking, yeah, I think you're really, you know, I'm kind of like, you're really overblowing this whole thing. But two weeks after she told me that he had moved into town with us was when I took this picture, and he showed up on the film. And the psychic who had originally, um, a couple years earlier, told us who the ghost was and the reason he was there, they had moved from Nevada back to Bemidji, Minnesota. And I was able to contact them through a relative that still worked with me. And uh, they contacted them, and uh, he called me back a couple of days. And I said, tell, you know, I told their son, I said, tell your dad to call me, tell him it's about Samuel, they'll know what I'm talking about. So they called me back a couple of days later when they got home and said that, um, they said, they go, so what's Sam up to these days? And so I told them. And so the guy who was the psychic who had originally told us who he was, he said, he said, of course. He said, you told Jennifer that he didn't move into town with you, and this was his way of letting you know that he was there for the new baby as well as the previous kids that he was, that I told you years ago, he was watching over. He wasn't there to hurt anybody, just to watch over the kids. And he said, and you didn't believe he moved in, so this was his way of letting you know that he was still with you. That it wasn't because of the house, that it was because of Jennifer. And so we thought, okay. And then he, then he really blew my mind because then he said, um, so what does he look like? And I said, well, I said, he's got kind of a, you know, he's kind of balding. He's got like a mustache. And I was trying to think of the word long johns because it looks like he was wearing like the old-fashioned long johns. And he goes, um... And I was trying to think of the word. I said, he's wearing, and he goes, is he wearing a nightshirt? And I go, well, yeah, I guess it could possibly be. I said, I was trying to think of the word long john. And I go, why? How did you know? And he goes, never mind. It doesn't matter. So he knew what he was wearing before, and, and he was in Bemidji, Minnesota on the phone with me. Now you're talking, so about, was, um, you're talking about Daniel Martin, right? Right. Daniel okay. Martin, yeah. And so, you know, so he was right again. And, um, you know, and <laughs> so, you know, it kind of went on from there. And like I said, then, you know, then the, all the stuff started hitting. And, but we had had a lot of incidents at our house when we first bought this old house and moved it out there. My husband and my dad um, were fixing the house. We had to, they had to build on the top eight-foot section of the roof that had been taken off to move it out there. And they were reworking things and plumbing, and they'd go to have lunch at my dad's house across the field, and they'd come back, and the tools would be in different rooms than where they were working with them, and they'd have to go searching the house for the tools that disappeared. And after we moved in, we'd have our thermostat would 
turn up to 95, um, and we'd notice it was getting hot in the house. We couldn't figure out, and the and thermostat was high up on the wall where neither of our girls at that time were big enough to reach it. And there were a couple of times when um, I would be cooking pork ribs <laughs> and be outside and come in to check them, and the, the oven was turned up to 550 all the way. And this happened like two or three different times that I was broke, that I was cooking this same thing um, over the you know over time and stuff. It ha- the same incident happened, so I don't know if it had any you know real correlation or anything. But but that was you know that was weird. And then this one morning when we heard um, footsteps, or I heard you know footsteps going up the stairs. Um, it was a weekend before Thanksgiving. And we had to work the Saturday before, you know, to get the four-day weekend off the following week at Thanksgiving. And um, the alarm had gone off, and I didn't have to get right up. I had about 15 minutes before I had to get up. So I was awake, and I heard footsteps coming down the stairs, because usually every morning, Jennifer was about three at the time, or, yeah, she was about three or four at the time anyway, she would come down the stairs, and you could count the stairs, and when she got to the bottom stairs, she'd holler at me, and she'd go, Mom, I want to drink a water. And so I counted the steps as it came down, and I waited for her at the bottom of the stairs to tell me she wanted to drink water. And she didn't say anything, so then I heard the footsteps go back upstairs and go back over into her room, and I thought, oh, well, she must have decided she didn't want to drink water this time. And so when I finally got up, I went upstairs to get the kids up, and Jennifer was still tucked in bed. And I woke her up, and I thought, well, that's really weird. And how did you get in bed with, get out of bed without untucking yourself? And so anyway, um, I tried to wake her up, and she says, Mommy, she says, um, she, I said, she says, a boy came by. I saw a boy. And I said, you saw a boy? And she said, yeah. And I said, no, you were dreaming. She says, no. Um, she said, a man came by me. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, I said, well, you must have been dreaming. And she says, no. Um, no, he came by my bed and was standing by my bed. And I said, well, what did he look like? And she said, I don't know. Like, she couldn't describe him. And so I go back downstairs, and I'm thinking, okay, so she's seeing somebody that correlates with us here in the footsteps going back up to her bedroom. So I told my husband. And that was at the time when that finally happened was when I went to work that day, and I told my coworker that, Something was definitely going on, and that's when she, you know, initiated the conversation about that her husband would be able to meet, you know, find out who our ghost was and stuff. And so, you know, like I said, uh, um, the following week she told me, she said, oh, yeah, Danny met your, met your ghost. And by the way, his name is Samuel and stuff. And so that's how that, but like I said, there were all these things that were always happening and stuff at the house. And she said he did tell them. She said, you may not hear from him now because he let him know that he is letting us know he was there was scaring us. And uh, so it was like things did quiet down. So we were kind of said, okay, or supposedly we have a ghost and his name is Samuel. And Danny told him to kind of back off because he's scaring us. And so things did quiet down for quite a while. And it was just um, after our, so we eventually, like, when I got pregnant, things quieted down, and there was just once in a while there were little things that just to let us know he was still there. And then a couple of years later when I was pregnant with our son, when, like I said, we moved into town, we thought we had the house go, we moved into town, 
and all of that happened with the picture. Well, the people who were renting our house ended up, we ended up having to beat them out. And now, you, are these the Robinsons? The no, 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 no. These were some other people that were renting it when I was playing with Scotty. So we moved back into the house again. We, we went ahead and moved back when Scotty was about nine months old. And um, the, night, the very night that we moved back in, um, the next morning, we knew that Samuel was kind of welcoming him at his home because the morning, the very next morning, um, both our electric alarm clock and our wind-up alarm clock both stopped at exactly the same time, you know, in the middle of the night. One was electric and one was wind-up, and they both, the next morning, we noticed that they were both the same time, but they had both stopped. So we thought, oh, okay, this is Samuel telling us, okay, welcome home. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, so it was, you know, kind of weird and stuff. I mean, there was just a lot of things. But after we got the picture and Samuel, you know, and uh, Danny told us that he was just there to let us know that he was there for the newborn as well as the other kids, we decided that, you know, okay, he's part of the family. So I blew the picture up to a five-by-seven put it in a frame and put it on the bookshelf with all of the kids' pictures, you know, and then everything remained, you know, remained calm and stuff. And, you know, just occasionally we would hear things. And then um, we were told um, years later when we moved in 88, we moved because our son was born in 82. Then summer of 88, we once again thought we had the house sold, had a lease purchase, and a move to California. And we had been told that um, that ghosts can't move with you unless you invite them. And by then we had gotten so used to him and considered him part of the family that when we were leaving and I did my last walk through the house to make sure we hadn't forgotten anything, I invited Samuel to move to California with us. And the weird thing is that after we moved to California, every other member of our family saw him at one point in time in place that we bought and two places that we rented during the time that we were in there. And then after after all our kids started getting married, like Guinea, she got married, her and her her first husband had had a son and she had a visit from Samuel when she was with her baby. Our other daughter Jennifer, when she got married and had kids, she had a visit from him during the night when she was pregnant with her, or had just had her her third baby. And our son, who is now 35 years old, he's got a 10-year-old son, and he had his visits from Samuel also, and even before he got married, when he moved in with a couple of roommates in a couple of different places, they all had incidences with him. So he has literally stayed with the family all these years and kind of been a part of everybody's lives since then. So what was your feelings on ghosts and paranormal activity before any of this actually happened? Were you already kind of prone to believing in it, or did you not believe in it, or did you not have an opinion of it? No, we did believe in it. As a matter of fact, um, we used to watch every scary movie that ever came out. And the movie, The Amityville Horror, um, somebody had given me a book about The Amityville Horror, and I read that, and it was so scary and freaky and stuff. But then they made a movie out of it, the original movie with James Brolin. Sure. 
when that was advertised that it was coming out, I was thinking, oh my God, I've got to go see that movie. So my, my husband and I and my sister and her husband went up to Reno when, where it was planned, where it was opening up, opening night of the movie being released. And we were actually got there. I was so anxious to see it that we were the first ones in line at the theater on opening day of the Amityville Horror. And we watched that. And it was so creepy and scary that, you know, and this happened before we bought this old house and had it moved out to our property. And so knowing that, how freaked out I got from watching scary movies and stuff, when my husband and my dad were first working on it, and they'd start telling me things about hearing footsteps downstairs when they were work, working upstairs or the tools disappearing from one room to another, I thought they were joking with me because they knew how scared I got watching scary movies. And I said, look, we're going to be living in this house. Don't try to scare me and don't get me paranoid to be here. And they said, we're not. This is stuff is actually happening. This stuff is disappearing from room to room and moving around and stuff. So, so we did believe. And, you know, and my husband's not one that really believes in religion or anything like that and stuff. But having lived through this, and having experienced all the stuff that happened with, the, you know, with the walking around and the things happening and, um, you know, we had to believe that there's something after death anyway, regardless. Right. You know, so, believe. Um, I mean, obviously, at first, when all this stuff starts happening, things that kind of break the schema of life, like these things should not be happening in everything that you've been taught to believe. Like, there should not be footsteps where there is not a person. Obviously, it was probably scary at first, but now you talk about it as if it's, he's, you know, you've kind of welcomed this entity into your life. Did, was it all, did you accept it from the very beginning with a welcoming attitude? Yeah. Or? Well, we did after we got the picture, and, you know, and it was saying that that was his way of letting us know that he was there to watch over the new baby as well as the other kids the other two daughters already, you know, I thought, okay, well, we'll blow it up, put his picture up there, and see if that calms him down, and see if, you know, to let him know that we accept that he's there, you know, and him not have to keep proving to us that he's there. But like I said, there's been so many incidents. As a matter of fact, the one that I had, we had moved to California, and we were living in this house, and our when Denny was, when Denny was, um, was seeing her before her and Chris got married. He used to come over before he went to his late shift um, night. I guess he worked like at midnight at Safeway. And he would come over the house before he went to work. And so my husband and I had gone to bed and we had a bathroom in that was through our bedroom. And then there was another bathroom between the two girls' bedrooms. And our son used to come into our bedroom and use our bathroom, you know, when he was, when he was like about, I don't know, eight or something like that, six or eight. But um, one night, my husband and I had gone to bed and Chris hadn't left for work yet, or, or we thought he had, hadn't left yet because we had our bedroom door shut and our bathroom door was shut. And I woke up when I heard the toilet flush. And my husband was still in bed, and I thought, oh, it must be Scotty. Scotty must have come in, you know, from bed and to use our bathroom, which he did. And so I got up on my elbows, and I waited for him to come out and just to look. And when I looked, and it was pretty dark in our room, but it wasn't our little six- or seven-, eight-year-old son. It was a adult-sized person. 
And, oh, I, God. and I couldn't see who it was through the dark, but I started to think that Chris, our daughter's boyfriend at that time, had come in to our bathroom to use them. I'm thinking, why would he come in our bedroom and use our bathroom when we're in bed? And as I started to say something, this figure disappeared through the bedroom door. Oh, my door gosh. Open. He just So that's how I knew it wasn't Chris. I knew it wasn't <laughs> Well, obviously, you could rule that and one I out. Thought, okay, okay, I'm convinced. He moved here. He did move to California with us. Now, what can you yeah, tell so me about... Said, uh, each place, one of our family members has had experiences of seeing him um, at the different places that we've lived. So we did know, and then, like I said, as they grew up and had kids, he has made himself known to all of them. And even my son's friends, you know, they knew about the story about Scotty and everything, and, you know, they are with the ghost and everything, and they were all fascinated by it stuff. But they all had incidences where they got locked out of their house and the key wouldn't work, and they couldn't get in, and then eventually they did, and eventually it wouldn't let them in. But they've all had, you know, so even his friends have experienced have experienced Samuel, um, you know, in the not-so-much flesh, but have had their experiences with him, and they're all, you know, they're all believers. It's like, oh, my God. So <laughs> on the... On... His wife, his wife, the first time he spent, she spent the night with, with Scotty at his apartment where him and his roommate were, they were the only ones there, and she woke up in the morning and had purple ink markings on her. And there was no purple pen anywhere in the house. She woke up, and she had this and tried to figure out where this stuff came from. So um, she kind of got an early, you know, early education oh, wow. about Samuel following the family around. So what can you tell us? Because, like, in the... Um in the segment, they, they start to profile some of the people who rented the house after you guys had moved out, the Robinson family. Um, now, yeah. they, they obviously had a totally different experience with with uh, right. entities in that house, and it wasn't necessarily yeah, of the, the malevolent kind. The was Danny, when, when, um, when we moved to California, um, we well, like I said, when we moved to California, and I invited Samuel to move with us, and we didn't know at that time whether he had or not. So we had um, we had put the house up for sale, and what happened was the people who were buying it lost their financing, and so we ended up with a empty house, a rent, a mortgage to pay, and rent in California. And my husband had broken his shoulder and wasn't able to work. And so we were stuck with the house being empty and stuff. And so one of the realtors um, that we had gone ahead and listed with, um, because these people had slaked out on us and lost the financing, we had to get a realtor to relist the house. And this gal decided to put some renters in, which was the Robinsons. She decided to rent the house to them, to these people, while she was trying to sell the house. Apparently she was friends with the realtor, or these people were friends with the realtor or something, but they ran into this family who had five kids, the Robinsons. Oh, wow. And, and they moved in. Uh, we weren't happy with the gal, with what she'd done, the listing and everything, but her listing was about to expire, and these renters were in there, and we relisted with the agent that had sold my parents' property, uh, a couple years earlier. And so she went out to put her new sign up there um, instead of the other real estate place. 
And so she, when she went out there to put her real estate sign up as taking over the listing, she saw the Robinsons and met with them and said and saw that they were moving out and they had only moved in two two and a half months earlier. And so when she was putting her sign up, she asked um, the guy. Um, I can't remember what his name is. Mona and I can't remember what Steve. his name was. Steve. Yeah. Anyway, um, she asked, dude, she said, so you guys just moved in a couple months ago. Why are you moving out so fast? And he goes, because my wife is scared to death to be in this house. And said, you know, there's something going on here. And he says, I don't believe in any of that stuff, but her and the kids are terrified and stuff. And so we didn't know what was happening, but the realtor called us and said, you need to get a hold of your friend Danny again, the psychic, and find out what's going on because these people are moving out because apparently they've been terrorized by whatever's going on there. And she said, I thought you told me Samuel moved with you. And I said, well, I invited him. I assumed he did. You know, we've had encounters with him already, you know, that have seen him, in our, you know, in California or had things happen with him. And so I was able to get a hold of Danny and... He told me when I told him what had happened that I had gotten a call from this realtor, and he said, um, "He said, well, first of all, let me stop you right there." He goes, "That is not Samuel there at the house." He said, "Samuel went to California with you," and he didn't know anything about you know he didn't know that we had asked him to go with us or anything. He just said he just knew that we had moved to California. He said Samuel moved to California with you. He went with you. He said, that is not him there. And he said, and I said, so what's going on? And he said, people attract like spirits. And he said, right now, he said, there are at least three of them in your house now with this other family. And he said, and they are more, they are not anything like Samuel. He said, they are more of the poltergeist type, angry kind of spirits, kind of ruffians is how he described them. And he said... He said, but there are at least three there. And I said, well, why? I don't understand this, because we had met the gal who had lived in the house and people who lived in the house before we bought it. And I said, they never had any, any problems. And he said, he said that when Samuel was attracted to us through Jennifer and everything, he said he kind of took possession of the house, but he said when he left, he left kind of a void there that opened the door for other spirits to come in, is what he told us. And he said, and these are a lot angrier ones and stuff, but they are attracted to people like themselves. So anyway, so they moved out, and as the history of that goes, um, a couple of, uh, I don't know how long after they moved out, Steve and Mona got a divorce. And um, he had run into them, I guess, saw Mona with her new boyfriend at dinner at one of these places in Gardnerville, and he knew the guy, I guess, or knew where he lived, so he rushed out to the guy's house out at Runestroth and was waiting for them when they got home from dinner, and he shot and killed her boyfriend. Oh, my God. He was God. able to get away and call the police, but he shot and killed her boyfriend waiting there, and so there was a big manhunt on for him in Nevada. And at the same time, or shortly thereafter, while he was on the loose, um, I don't know if anybody remembers the history of it, but there was a park ranger in Yosemite National Park that had been shot. He wasn't killed, but he was shot. And he was shot by the same caliber bullet as the 
bullet that killed this guy's or Robinson, Mona Robinson's boyfriend. And so there was on the national news, they were looking for Steve Robinson in connection with both. They thought maybe he had fled there and gotten into an argument with the Ranger and shot him. But as it turned out, it wasn't the same. He wasn't the one who shot the park ranger because he was later picked up after he carjacked two different people, ran out of gas in one, then carjacked another one. And when he ran out of gas, some state troopers or something found him out of gas on the side of the road and recognized who he was and arrested him. So, so wow. that was kind of that. So that kind of explained that Danny was right about like him, you know, people attracting like spirits. And then years later when what was the baby of Robinson's when they moved when they were living in our house advanced forward you know I don't know she's now 17 or 18 years old and my sister-in-law sends us a newspaper clipping from Nevada where Mona Robinson her oldest son Garrett who uh Garrett I think it was or anyway the two boys that were in the Unsolved Mysteries show that right. we're talking both of the oldest one at least and maybe the other one too but the one that was the baby when we were there um when they were living there was now 18 years old and the four three or four of them the mom and one one or two sons and the daughter were all arrested for a big meth bust and drug bust oh wow there so it was like he was right about people attracting like spirits must have been something about that house, too, because that house seemed to be kind of like the cornerstone of the spirit world, you know, like... Well, yeah, and, and the, the world, the, um, the newspaper that I was saying that gave us the most, in, the most information about the history of the house was, was also kind of weird because um, in the article... They had tracked it down through records, tax assessor records or something, to find out the history of the house. And we found out that a man by the name of William S. O'Brien had built the house in 1870. And um, he was part of a... Um, how it happened was this guy, William S. O'Brien, and this guy named Flood, they owned a bar in San Francisco. And when they hit the... Comstock load up in Virginia City, Flood talked O'Brien into sell for them to sell their their business in San Francisco and invest in the mines up in Virginia City. So they did that and they went and bought mining claims up there. And William S. O'Brien built this house for himself. This just little modest two story, you know, little country Victorian. It wasn't anything special or anything. But it was built in eighteen seventy and then Five years later, there was a big fire that burned out a lot of Virginia City. And that same year, in 1875, for some reason, that house was lifted off its foundation and moved a block or two down the street. And they don't know why. They've never been able to figure out why this house, which was just a plain Jane little two-story, why it was moved. Well, from there, in the early 1890s, it was moved by, um, they had like logs that they rolled this house down down the, the um, down mountain into Carson City, and it was moved to Carson City and relocated there, I think, in 1892. And that's where we found it to buy the house. Well, anyway, the, William S. O'Brien, who had had the house built, when they had, he had made his fortune, 
he decided to go back to San Francisco. So he sold his house, moved back to San Francisco, and built a mausoleum for himself for when he died. Well, according to this newspaper article, um, he actually died on May 2nd, 1878. And they said that during the Depression, some, you know, when people were homeless and starving and everything, some itinerants, they said, broke into his mausoleum and took up residence there for shelter. So that was one aspect that his grave had been desecrated. This was the guy who originally built the house. But the key factor in that, that we were kind of trying to figure out whether it had anything to do with all the stuff that was happening for us, was that it was exactly a century to the day that he died. Yeah, they mentioned that in the show. It was May 2nd, 1978, when we decided to buy the house. Wow. And it was through this article years later that we found that saw that it was exactly a century to the day that we decided to buy the house from his death. So we didn't know if that had anything in the fact that his that his mausoleum had been broken into at some point in time in the 20s, whether us moving the house again or whatever had anything to do with, you know, or the fact that it was a century from the date of his death. So we were just, you know, we thought that was just really coincidental, but we never figured out whether that had anything to do with it. So, so was there anything but, um, on the Unsolved Mysteries segment, um, as far as the story goes, was there anything on there that was um, maybe inaccurate, or was there anything that was different on the, sh- on the segment than what actually happened, or was there more? I'm sure um, there was more that happened. No, but. most of it was, was, most of it, I mean, everything from our part was accurate, but we, they also allowed me, well, well, two things. One that I wanted to say that... Um, that I was the one thing I was disappointed about the show was that um, they left out a piece of information that made it look like we might be just kind of Looney Tunes or something, and that was the thing about the picture being taken off of a TV screen. Yeah, the guy had mentioned. I remember that. So what happened on that was we had already they had already done their interview with me, and and uh, you know I had told them my story, and then they did some reenactments and stuff, and then. Part of my interview was me coming back on in response to what this guy had said because they told me that they had sent, while we were, you know, after the first day of our filming, they had had the, the picture and the negative. Um, they had had it sent down to this guy um, who was the one that they were talking to. They had it sent down to him because he does special effects in Burbank and Hollywood. And that's his that's his thing. He and they had him examine the negative and the picture, and asked him. So could this be a scam? Is what they asked him. And they sent him the picture. They sent him the negative, and told him, you know, what the story was. And they said, could this be a scam? And he he told them that he said. Because I'm in the special effects industry, and this is what I do for a living, he said, I could pull off a scam like this. He said, that, that is a fact, because, because that's what I do. And he goes, and here's what I'd need. He said, I would need a large screen TV and special camera and stuff that has, or I guess the TV was supposed to have some kind of, I don't know if it was the camera or the TV, but something that would have freeze frame capability to freeze the picture on the TV screen. He said, and then I'd need this special kind of camera or whatever 
to take a picture of that and you know and then from there was fine he said i could do this i could do this with a big screen tv freeze frame take the picture with my camera and then present it and say yeah it's a ghost he said i could do that because that's the industry i'm in he said and this was he was interviewed in 1990 in november of 1990 which was when we were filming the show he said the only problem is this picture was taken in January of 1982 when none of the equipment that I would need to pull off a scam now even existed at that time. And that was the part of his interview that they left, and they told me what he had said. They showed me his interview. And that was the point, but they left that part out of his, the part that they filmed. They oh, I see. The fact that the equipment he would need to pull off that of kind of a scam in 1990 did not exist in 1982 when the picture was actually taken. And they left that off, so it left, so they kind of leave it, you know, at the end where Robert Stack comes down and he says, it's up to the belief, you know, it's whether you believe or not, who's, you know, do you believe or not? Right. And stuff, and that was the part I was disappointed with because it left it looking like we had just taken a picture off a TV screen, which I'd never, you know, even thought about ever doing. And the fact that this picture had run in every newspaper in the state of Nevada and nobody recognized him, ever. Nobody ever was able to figure out. And the fact that he was from back sometime in the olden days of Virginia City when he lived there, you know, or something. But they did say that um, the original place that the house was built wasn't next to the Virginia City Cemetery, but there was a graveyard, a small graveyard near where the house was built. And it wasn't, and Samuel, our Samuel was not William S. O'Brien. It was not the guy who originally built the place. So, um, you know, so it was weird. But as far as the people, the story, um, because it was our story initially, and then because the Robinsons lived in there, the thing that was weird about that, which connects the whole thing, is that the Robinsons, their oldest son, um, I got to sit in and listen to their interview. I was the only one that got to go in and watch while they were being interviewed to hear what happened to them during their time over there, those two and a half months. And the oldest son had come home from, from school, rode the bus home, and he was the only one home. And he said he went in the house, and he said that he started hearing this noise upstairs. And he said he went upstairs into one bedroom, and the noise would stop there and would start in another bedroom. And then it would stop, and then you'd go in that bedroom, and it would stop there, and then it would go into another room upstairs. And then it would stop there, and he started getting scared. So he said he came down the stairs, and as he was coming down, he heard humming in three-part harmony. Yeah, they show that on the segment, and, yeah. And he said that he got really scared, and so he said he ran out the door, and as he went out the door out to the where the gate was at the end of the yard, he said he turned the, the screen door started slamming, open and closed, and then he said he got really scared, and then he said this man's face appeared in one of the bedroom windows, which was our old bedroom, on the right-hand side, and he said, and he closed his eyes and opened them again because he thought he was seeing things. And then the same face appeared instantly in the other window on the other side. And you would have had to have gone through two doors and across the hallway to get to that other window. But he said just in an instant, he vanished from one and appeared in the other. And so he told his parents about this. 
and they had kind of known about, uh, they started asking the neighbors about this when this happened. Um, he called his mom and, or grandmother and she told him to just get out of the house when this, you know, that's why he ran out and saw this. But anyway, and he waited outside until his parents got home. And um, so they started asking the neighbors about if there was anything weird going on with this house. And they talked to the neighbor who had done the newspaper article for the Halloween edition. It was the original start of this story getting out. And um, she told him about that. And she had the picture still that they ran in the newspaper and asked him if that was the same guy he saw, which was Argos, Samuel, and said, is this the man that you saw in the window? And he said, no, this guy that I saw had silver hair and a red cape. And we're thinking, well, that sounds kind of, you know, flaky, you know. So, so you know, it just kind of sounded kind of weird. But when... Um, when we read this article, um, it kind of, like I said, brought it all full circle because when we had read the article about the, um, from the Las Vegas Review Journal, and we found out that William S. O'Brien, you know, became one of the Silver Kings in all the history books. He was the one that built the house in 1870. He was one of the, considered one of the four Silver Kings of the Comstock Road in Virginia City and was very high society. And it said in this article that his trademark, because he used to go to the opera that they had in Virginia City back there, and his trademark was that he had silver hair and a red cape that he wore to the opera. <laughs> so the one that he saw was apparently the original owner <laughs> of the house. And so this kind of brought it all for a circle because we had never talked to these people. They never, we never, they never knew anything about this article we had in this newspaper because it was long after we'd moved, you know, to California that those conversations took place and those newspaper articles hit and stuff. So it all tied together that, you know, that this stuff happening. But the, but the wife, Mona Robinson, they said that, they were laying in bed one night, and this is what her husband had told our realtor was, or this is what she said when we heard the interview, but apparently what had happened was that she was laying in bed and kept hearing this evil kind of growling noise behind their headboard, and she was trying to wake her husband up, and he wouldn't, and she heard somebody call her a bitch yeah. while she was in bed. And so there were, you know, they had a lot of weird things happening, and their son, also, their second youngest son also had been kind of the same thing with our daughter, because our daughter, Jennifer, at one time, after, you know, after the incident with him, you know, um, well, before she actually saw him, there was an incident where um, she was up there arguing in bed and stuff, and Jenny went in to check on her to find out what was going on, because she was going, would you stop that? I just, this isn't fair. I don't like this or something like that and was ranting. And then he went in and checked on her and asked her what she was doing. She says, something keeps lifting, trying to lift me up out of my bed. And she goes, oh, you probably just rolled over on your teddy bear or something. And she put her hands on her hips or something when she got, because she took her blanket, was going to go downstairs and get, because she couldn't sleep. Because she told Denny something kept trying to lift her out of her bed. And she said, oh, you probably just rolled over on your teddy bear or something, and she put her arms, I guess, on her hands on her hips and said, my teddy bear can't lift me up out of my bed. <laughs> so we had this one incident with her, and then when we were listening to the kids' interview, it turned out that one of their kids, the entire bed 
had tried to lift up on him with him in it. So, you know, like I said, they had had other instances, you know, themselves and stuff, but we had gotten to listen to some of their stories, and that's why the kids were terrified, too. And so they got where they were all sleeping downstairs. They wouldn't let the kids sleep upstairs. That's why they only lasted there for about two and a half months. So did you, uh, when you were, like, on the set or whatever, when y'all are filming, did you ever get a chance to meet Robert Stack? No, no, we asked about that. You know, we asked if they would, you know, if we would be, and they said, no, he just does the promo for him, but he does all his filming in Burbank or Hollywood. Oh, bummer. He doesn't do any, you know, anything like that. But um, but we made, we met a bunch of really, really awesome people during the filming. Um, Michael Palazzolo was the, um, was the producer of the show, and he originally, when we were talking to him, he was originally... Um, a backup dancer on Grease 2. Oh, my goodness. For him to see, looking at the rerun to see if we could picture him in there. <laughs> and um, his buddy, Dan Gomez, was the director of the show. And, and it became really one of their, you know, one of their favorite shows. We, we met a, the whole cast and crew were just comical and were playing. They were, everybody was playing practical jokes on each other. And, um, you know, it was just it was just really, a you know, a really fun time and stuff and one guy that they had hired out of Reno was their production assistant they were sending him on all the errands like to go get more film or to go get like the picture the negative and stuff to sit go up to Reno to have it FedEx or you know flown down to the guy in Hollywood to review and um, he was being sent all over the place and doing all this stuff and when they kept filming one day they had left some stuff upstairs and they told this guy, he was like young, he was like about 27 years old or something, and, and they told him to go upstairs and get some equipment that they had left up there, and he's like, you mean I have to go up there by myself? <laughs> <laughs> they were all getting creeped out by the story and everything. And um, there was a, um, the guy that did, his name was Bob MacArthur or McCarthy or something like that. Anyway... Him and his son did the special effects for the show and did the, like, lifting Jennifer up and set it, you know, the little girl playing Jennifer to do the, you know, all the special effects and stuff. And um, we, we were talking to him, and he was talking to us about other shows that he had done, uh, like he had done the movie Haunted Hollywood, the special on that, and he had done all the Beastmaster series, and special effects for those, but he was telling us about other stories that through Hollywood, doing the haunted Hollywood thing that he had encountered, and about the UFOs in Roswell and being a cadet when that whole thing happened and being on guard there at the place, and just had some really interesting stories. So he himself really believed in all of this stuff, the supernatural and, you know, paranormal and everything like that. And so we had had some really good, you know, conversations with people who were really true believers, you know, in this stuff. And as it turned out, this was, it, um, they were so, all of the crew was so impressed with our story and everything that um, we found out they selected our show to be on the 100th anniversary, the 100th show special that they had. It was oh, one cool. of three or four pictures. Uh, Stories of their favorite stories that they did for their hundredth episode and stuff. So, so anyway, it was you know it was really cool. Like I said, we we accepted him, accepted him as part of the family, and and he's continued to prove that he's 
you know, been with the family and was there for our family. And believe me, our family's been through a lot of stuff over the years. And you know, don't know whether he's been part of the part of the factor helping us through get through things. You know. So ever since the show, everything, uh, everything as far as uh, the you know the ghosts and all that kind of stuff, it's been. Has it calmed down? Has it stayed the same? Do you still hear bumps in the night? Yeah, like I said, it's got like like the thing with the water that we had, where I heard the toilet flush and a guy kind of disappeared through the thing. There was another incident with with Jennifer when she was. Um, I don't remember if, if she was pregnant or her. I think her her baby, her youngest daughter, was a baby then just, you know, was just a newborn, but um, she woke up, Jennifer woke up in the middle of the night, and everybody was asleep, and the two kids were, you know, her other two kids were just little kids, but she woke up in the middle of the night, and the bathtub had been plugged, and was both faucets were turned on full blast, and when she woke up, the tub was just getting ready to, to blow over in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh. So... You know, so that was another incident with water that had respect to water that happened to her, and there was no explanation for it other than that Sammy was there letting him know that she was he was there for the new baby too, and we can't. <laughs> you know, so so you know it's been quiet. Uh, a lot of times things happen, you know, and at Scotty, our youngest now, he's the last one to have had numerous encounters, like seeing him standing at the foot of his bed or somebody standing there in the shadows at the foot of their bed and and the little boy, um, the baby, when he was still a baby, his walker, they'd come in three or four times, the walker would be out in the middle of the room in the middle of the doorway, not where it was left the night before. And, and their son, when he got to be a couple of years old, he said he saw somebody in his room too. So, you know, so we figure he's, following is going to be generational you know? oh no <laughs> so i mean that's all we can conclude because there's been no other explanation other than you know after being told that he's there to watch over our family and it's like each time you know somebody has an addition of family and they're all grown up too so well, um, I, I gotta say, it's funny. Uh, just the the picture um, that they showed in the segment um, of the old man or or whatever, um, it, it looked so similar to the album cover to uh, Phil Collins' "But Seriously" album. I was sitting there going, "Oh no, that's a Phil Collins uh, a, a picture." Of Phil Collins, they got. There. <laughs> I mean, I know, I know it wasn't, but it looked very similar yeah. to that album cover. It was, it was just a little funny side note that I thought I'd mention. Yeah. Um, but no, well, anyway. The only thing is, like, we, you know, we've been, like I said, been hearing Denny and Greg were telling about all the stuff that they've heard. And the weird thing about it is that Jennifer, um, who attracted the ghost in the first place, um, she went with her two daughters last summer to Nevada um, to spend a week with our, her youngest daughter's grandmother, um, or step-grandmother, and um, at a at a timeshare unit. And so they took one day to meet with my sister and go out to the old house because Jennifer hadn't been out back there in years. So my sister and my two granddaughters and my daughter, Jennifer, all went out there last year and last summer and took pictures of the house. And she was just showing me here because they were here for Easter today. And she was showing me the pictures they took in front of our old house. And Denny was saying how there's all this stuff on the internet saying that the house was 
so horrible that they had to destroy it, and there's nothing but a crickety old staircase left and a basement. Well, it wasn't a basement. There was never a basement there. We moved the house out, and the foundation, block, cinder block foundation, was put underneath it, and then the house was lowered back on it and stuff. So, you know, it's like, okay, I guess nowadays anything is okay and fair game to say about anything, even, you know, if it's not true, anybody can throw their two cents worth out there. And that was... That was my only concern about the fact that there's all of this, you know, non-truthful stuff going on about that, you know, and, you know, we don't know um, who's, you know, who's talking. We do know that when I took, when my husband and I took our two granddaughters out there in 27, or 2011, we took her them out there to see the house. That was the first time they had ever been out there in Nevada to see it. And the people that we had sold it to we're still living in it, and they let us go through the whole house and take pictures and everything. So it was still there, and as of last summer, it was still there. So, you know, people saying, oh, it was such an evil house, it was destroyed, and, you know, and all this other stuff. So, you know, it's kind of like, no, that's not really true, and yeah. it's still there, and, you know. And well, um, I, I guess that's all that uh, all the questions I had for you. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to me about this, and shed some light on some of the stuff you know more in depth about what happened because yeah i'm always i'm all you know i would love to talk to like everybody who i talk about on our podcast and kind of figure out more information because you know they just brought the show back to amazon prime so um i know i've been binge watching uh the old unsolved mysteries shows and it, it's it's nice to catch up with the people who are actually on the show and just kind of see yeah. what they've been up to and kind of you know more because i know if it, it's a tv show so they have to edit some stuff out for time and sometimes they'll you know yeah. cast people in different lights and all that stuff so it's kind of nice to get it straight from the source and all that yeah but well, um like i said we just i told i told Jenny, and Greg, I said, well, it sounds like our house, our story has become an urban legend, and anybody can contribute to it, make it bigger and farther, and just you know, off in all directions than what it was. But you know, it was, it was a, you know, it was an experience that we'll never forget, and it was scary at times, and you know, and but you know, we made it through, and we found out what it was about, and and the house, as it turns out, was a very, you know, not the house itself, but the guy who built it was very historical, and one of the richest people ever to come out of the Comstock, you know, so it's a, you know, it has history in the whole, you know, thing about it, and stuff mm -hmm. in all the history books, and so it's William S. O'Brien, and, you know, they teach that in school. As a matter of fact, I was told that the kid, the one who saw the guy in the window wearing the red cape, mm -hmm. the, silver hat, the silver cape, um, we were told that he was in school one year, uh, I don't know, shortly after that, he was in his um, elementary school class, and they were doing history, and they were doing Nevada history, and it was studying the Comstock era, and he opened the book up in the library or something, and there was a picture of the man in there, William S. O'Brien, as one of the Comstock kings, and he freaked out at school, from what I understand. Oh, wow. That's the guy I saw in the window, you know, so... You know, so it is... Um, like I said, it kind of came full circle. We found out, you know, what... You know, it was valid stuff that we didn't know about and that they didn't know about that turned out to be true, you know, by just by history's sake. So, all right. Well, that was the interview. Uh, hope everybody enjoyed it. Uh, it was, I hope everybody gained some uh, nice little details from that interview that, that you did not get um, on, the, on the actual segment. 
thank you, Suzanne and Greg and um, and Denny and uh, Jennifer and all the other people in the family there. And uh, yeah, I, I appreciate you talking to me and um, I'm sure Mike appreciates it. And uh, yeah. So if you want to uh, add us on uh, Facebook, it's facebook.com slash Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. Join our new and vibrant Facebook group. Almost a thousand uh, members now. It's crazy. Uh, that's also Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. I gave you the Patreon already. Uh, Mike's YouTube channel is youtube.com slash OCP Communications. You can check out his movie reviews on there. I already gave you my YouTube earlier. Um, have a good night, everybody. See ya. All right. Hello. Can you hear me all right? Yeah. Sorry about that. My computer was literally doing everything in its power to be a fucking cocksucker to me just then. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're trying to do something and you're on a time frame. Let's throw every fucking roadblock in your way to slow you the fuck down. Oh, my God. Because I was wondering, like, why is it taking that long? What's going on? Yeah. Skype, <laughs> Skype wasn't working. I would double click on it and nothing would happen. It just wouldn't do anything. So I went to restart it. And the restart screen just stayed on the screen and it never like shut down and restarted. So I finally just manually shut it off and turned it back on. And now it's now it seems to be doing all right. Weird. Fuck me. But the one thing I thought about is like, well, this is going to be a uh, shorter episode anyway, because we're only. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it should be fine. So what do you, what case do you want to start with? Do you want to save uh, Kevin for last? Uh, yeah. Or do you want me to? Yeah. Okay. Because I I feel like uh, that Dexter one is uh, maybe a little shorter and yeah. a little bit. And it also it, it's uh, yeah it's pretty uh, pretty intense. <laughs> so start off with that, and then you know we'll have a little bit lighter fare. Yeah, with the hacking. To, to, Okay. All right, cool. Uh, all right, I guess we can get going. Was this episode 43? I don't even think I have to look anymore. I just 44? Okay, now you've put doubt in my mind, so now I do have to look. <laughs> I could be wrong. You may be right. No, you're wrong. I may be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you just might be the lunatic I'm looking for. Billy Joel. Uh, all right. I fucked around with these levels last time I used it because I used because uh, I'm almost done with the actual episode of my YouTube channel instead of a fucking blog vlog or whatever. Yeah. And I was having a I fucked around with the audio because I was using this. Uh huh. So I hope I didn't fuck up. Yeah, I see that. All right, so now I'm at the same level as you, I think, now. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, okay. here we go. <laughs> it's So going back to the segment here, it seems impossible that any single person could jam up these sophisticated works, yet all of it... Oh, fuck my anus. Take, <laughs> take number two. 508. I like that. Instead of fuck my ass, it's fuck my anus. Because I don't want to say ass, because I I've swore I've sworn enough by saying f- fuck. <laughs> well, my so, biggest problem is I don't go and proofread these shits like when I type them. 
So yeah. whatever fucked up way I typed it out is just how it stays. Um. We feel that Kevin probably started out as any hacker because of curiosity. But as the years wore on, his curiosity became unsatisfied. His curiosity crossed uh, the, bo- the line. Fuck. Take three. Take two. 107.53. If you write the lines down right the first time, god damn it. <laughs> I couldn't stand the lines not being written the the right way if I was doing that. So that's just me personally though. But I could see you're in a rush, you're just like, ah, oh, I just gotta get this typed. And then Yeah, exactly. Oh no, I normally would do it right if I had the time. But, you know, with all the time that you're spending with your girlfriend and and with the work, with your job and things like that. Oh, no, it's not even the girlfriend thing. It's it's just like I, I know, have a gig I, I got to go just, to. I was just being sarcastic. Yo, yo, did yo, you see bro. that comment where I was all like, hey, <laughs> that's why you're you're so busy. I did see that. And like like two or three of your followers liked it. <laughs> they they just <laughs> they just like anything you do or say, Mike. <laughs> hey, it's it's I don't mind that. <laughs> I don't mind that. As you're sitting on your throne right now, as they feed you grapes and fan you with <laughs> pond fronds. <clears throat> nah, I wouldn't make them do that. <laughs> All right, here we go. We feel that Kevin probably started out as any hacker because of curiosity. But as the years wore on, his curiosity became unsatisfied. His curiosity became, are you fucking serious? (laughs) Fuck my ass. You got to keep that stuff in there. Holy I mean, shit. I mean, for like a bonus thing, but oh, put yeah, the no. bo- a blooper, like oh, put, it out and put it in a blooper you reel. Idiot! Write it down. Right. <laughs> I have his curiosity became unsatisfied twice in a row. Why is that in there twice? <laughs> fucking take three. Just take four. I don't fucking take know. Four. Who cares? It doesn't matter. It's all fucked. <laughs> I gotta go soon. All right. All right. I'm gonna try to. <laughs> okay. All right. So, without further ado, um, I guess uh, we're just going straight to the interview here, right? Yeah. You want one? Have an edit there. Yep. Yep. This is gonna be one of those podcasts. <laughs> Uh, it's all right. Comes with the territory. Can't be perfect all the time. <clears throat> all right, so I'm going to do a without further ado or whatever, and then I'm going to come back and, like, you know, like the something that I can use for after the interview's over. Uh, okay. Okay. 